And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode 41 today, uh, where we're joined by author of Into Africa, Bruce Fenton, and co-author of uh, Hybrid Humans with his wife, Daniela. Um, and we're, uh, we're glad to have him here today. He also, uh, you know, he was on uh, featured on the Science Channel. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. So uh, how are you doing, Bruce? Uh, very well, yeah. Thank you both for, you know, inviting me on. Always appreciate it. Uh, I get to talk about my favorite subjects, general weirdness and ancient mysteries. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um. So before we get into all your work and your research and everything, uh, what's your background on all this stuff? Like, I know I've seen you talk about when you were 10 and 11, you started to get into this kind of stuff, but yeah. was there any sort of synchronicity that happened when you're like late teen or early adult sort of age that really was a catalyst for getting into it heavily or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, apart from the, at least say the, the early engagement with um, ancient mysteries, which came about by my grandmother giving me cards, these little ancient mysteries or unexplained mysteries of the world cards, and they would come free with her tea leaves. Um, and they had every, you know, crystal skulls, the Costa Rica spheres, yetis, not Ness monsters, you know, the, the whole range. I think it's about 40 cards in the set. So that was the, you know, really my first sort of exposure to all these kind of strange subjects. Um, but, yeah, I think probably... Around about 14, 15, I had some personal direct experiences of sort of psi forces, you know, like um, telepathy particularly, um, suddenly knowing something about, you know, a family member at a distance, being aware that, that they had a specific problem, and then later that being validated. Um, and that was just, it sort of came out of nowhere, you know, I just suddenly knew kind of what was happening to them. Um, so that, again, that yeah, reinforced to me that there was more to the world than we really are led to think. Um, and that in some sense, you know, that I was personally involved in that strangeness. So I guess that that was perhaps one of the catalyzing events, you know, that then, I guess, sealed my fate to being interested in both the unexplained mysteries and the psychic and paranormal side of things as well. So did it start, um, you know, you're, you're saying it started kind of with this, like, thirst for ancient, uh, you know, knowledge or something like that. But was it always combined with the paranormal or was there over time when you're like, I'm, I'm going straight archaeology on this kind of a thing? Or has there always been that element of the magical side of things too? I would say that that element has always been there. I mean, and if I look now and I was to look back, I mean, I, I had when I was very young, you know, I had repeating nightmares in which, you know, I was taken by beings uh, put on a table um, that among them there were some characters one that I thought of as being rather like Chewbacca uh, this kind of hairy humanoid and uh, another one you know as a child things I interpreted another one as being reminded me a bit of, um, of, a, of a vampire um, but there was a you know the, obviously it, as a full I think I was probably about five or six or something quite young maybe seven so obviously I, I interpreted what I saw through the, the, the familiar imagery for a young child but, you know, obviously, if I look back, I can also relate that to the phenomena, you know, of course, with people having these abduction type experiences in childhood. And, you know, I do wonder if that wasn't perhaps another catalyzing force that, you know, in some way, the phenomena had already chosen me or targeted me from a very young age. And without maybe knowing it, perhaps in my unconscious, 
I was already being directed towards the more bizarre, you know, the psychic, the paranormal, um, on some level, you know, I, I don't know if, if I would say, oh yeah, I've been abducted by aliens, you know, cause I can't say that. I can certainly say that I had experiences that now as a researcher, I could look back and say, well, they fit into that category of the abduction phenomena, um, and those kind of psychic experiences in childhood that seem to mark a lot of people in this niche, you know, that then they, they realize that they've had contact with strange forces from very early on. Um, so I do think that perhaps that's why I, you know, I've always been interested in both aspects, not just the ancient mystery side, but also the, the strange side. I think it's always been around, you know, and I, I did always have a sense that there was energy in my room. You know, I'd look up and see around the ceiling, I would notice that there was what looked like a kind of mist a lot of the time, like a black mist that was rolling around on the ceiling. So, I mean, I was intensely aware of that as a kid thinking like, what is that? You know, so, so I think that, yeah, I was always had some kind of mystical involvement in my life. Um, so it was a bit inevitable that, that I would follow that path as well as the ancient mystery side. Now, you said a couple of interesting things. We had a guest on, uh, he runs a website called tailleaders.com. His name's Lee Adams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about OBEs and sleep paralysis. He's studying consciousness at JFK mm-hmm. University. Um, but his main thing is with the, he thinks the abduction thing is sleep paralysis, which could mm-hmm. still be some sort of a abduction. Yeah. It could still be some sort of connection to the metaphysical. Uh, cool. But a lot of people that experience, you know, abduction events are usually, you know, mm-hmm. sounds like sleep paralysis from the way they describe it. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex, a very complex phenomenon, as you know, um, because, now they're starting to call sort of sleep paralysis as REM intrusion into, you know, waking states. So it's very hard for someone to then differentiate between, you know, was it, was it an actual experience, you know, in terms of what we think of as fully conscious awareness or, or, or was it an intrusion of these, you know, this um, dream states into our waking reality or, or is it something else? You know, is it a multidimensional phenomena? Is it a physical visitation? You know, and I think the, the phenomena overlap and they, they're so intensely strange to study that I think it's very hard to come to a conclusion, but we can certainly say that um, most people can tell the difference between a normal dream and being awake, right? So we get a typical dream, you know, your brain tricks you up until the point when you wake up and then it makes it sort of quite clear to you that was a dream, you know, you know, hang on, no matter how real that felt, I'm aware it was a dream. So clearly something different is happening in, in these, these particular experiences because even lucid dreams, you know that when you wake up, you know it was a, a lucid dream, no matter right. how real it was. And the fact that you, know, you become conscious, you can control it, you know, it's like being in another world. But again, you do then wake up and think, well, you know, that was a dream. So, so they, are, they are kind of bizarre you know, in that the brain, why would the brain want to fool us in that way? when it seems that the brain, you know, tries its best not to make us feel mentally unwell. You know, it lets us know, hey, that was all, you know, uh, make-believe. Now, you know, get on with your day. So why it would then kind of leave us in a situation where we're left questioning our sanity, you know, it, it seems a strange thing for the brain to have as an evolutionary trait, doesn't it? That, you know, that it, every now and again it decides to trick us into thinking we're nuts. Um, so I do wonder, you know, what that is. What is going on there? Is it some sort of, you know other dimensional phenomena, you know, is it some kind of intrusion by, you know, um, something that's hacking the mind in some way? Um, so again, it doesn't need to be physically real to be a valid 
strange phenomena that is perhaps not fully in the brain. You know, that it could be something in some way hacking the mind. So that I, I'm left wondering that uh, rather than sort of looking to prove these things as being physically real. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, uh, I hate the explanation when scientists are like, Oh, that's just our brain shutting off to get our body, you know, in, in the, in the, you know, uh, tonic state while we sleep and our body's just on, you know, standby or whatever. I hate that explanation. And and really we don't even know what consciousness is. So no. the fact that they throw that kind of shit around on all the scientific sites and papers and stuff really makes me angry because there's not a re this is so steeped in the hard science and, and uh, reductionism as they are, there's really no evidence for them to even prove their side of things. So no, no. And we don't really understand dreams. You know, we don't, really, we, we know that they have benefits. We know that sleep states have benefits. We don't really understand dreaming. So right. then to, to kind of just say, well, Hey, it's just a dream, you know? And again, what is experience? You know, experience is just neurons, you know, firing in the brain, you know, electrical signals. You know, there's no, when we think about, you know, a fixed physical reality, and again, that's an illusionary idea. So, I mean, we have to be very careful of saying that, you know, this set of experiences you had is not valid, you know, even right. though it's working fundamentally the same as the other set that we accept as being valid. You know, they're both just electrical signals being interpreted in your brain subjectively, you know, of, of phenomena that may not actually be the way that you're interpreting it. So whether you're in a, a fully conscious or a altered consciousness, I don't think that we get to just say, well, that's, you know, that's not real, but that one is. I think, well, look, if you're getting an experience from it that is important to you and you interpret it as real, then for you, it's a real valid experience, isn't it? I mean, it's... Oh, I agree with actually, you know, it says that the same basic concept you were just saying is uh, Dennis McKenna. He's like... You know, if you have an experience on ayahuasca or DMT or something like that, mm-hmm. who's to say that that's not actually happening? You know, it's just, mm-hmm. does it have some sort of value in terms of explaining this reality or does it have some sort of value? Like, what's the value of that, I guess, would be the question then, not if it is, the experience is real, but, you know, yeah. what value does it hold? Well, why don't you think, why don't you think you can tune, why don't you think you could tune in when you're uh, awake then? You know, why does it always happen when you're sleeping? Why, why, why can't you sort of tune in more when you're awake into yeah. these things? Well, yeah. I suppose, you know, if you go into the sort of meditative states, then, you know, often you find that you can. So I suppose you can deliberately I, I enter these states. But again, yeah, you have to do something to focus on them. But then again, you know, people that see, say, ghosts or see, you know, what seems to be visible objective phenomena, because, I mean, you could have two of you see what appears to be a ghost, and another two people with you saying, well, I didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what's that about? Because then we can't say that's fully subjective or fully objective because, you know, n- not everyone saw it. But again, it could be more than one person seeing it. So sometimes this phenomena does seem to intrude into fully waking states and yet not become fully objective. So, uh, again, this is what makes the, the, the psi forces and the paranormal so complicated and so hard to explore because, you know, you don't get that comfortable thing. We can say, well, we all saw it. We all saw the same thing. We all felt the same thing. We all experienced it the same. That's very rare. You know, you, if, you, if you ask the people what they experienced, each one will say, well, I felt it was this, it was scary. Or something. another person, I felt that it had a message or, you know, and each person can come back to you with a different interpretation of that event. Right. And, and yet, you know, multiple people witnessing it. So I don't know. It's, it's a really a funny area because unlike other objective experience, like we can all see, 
you know, a red car and hear it roughly the same. We see it as the red car, you know. So, yeah, there's a different level of objectivity with normal, mundane, physical reality. But there are these phenomena that seem to be somewhere in the gray area between the two. So I, I don't think it's just in the sleep states, but but certainly, yeah, there, there's these crossover experiences. I, I've actually had an ongoing theory from, you know, I started this podcast because I wanted to develop my own theory of everything. And I had some synchronicities mm-hmm. happen that really pushed me into a direction where this is what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. And I'll, you know, I've talked about it on other episodes. I'm not going to go into the whole spiel right now. But um, in terms of what I think is going on, is there's one metaphysical, and within that one metaphysical, whatever your perception is of that thing is what it manifests itself in. So, let's say mm-hmm. I was watching Ancient Aliens, and I'm on an Ancient Aliens kick, and all of a sudden. I have a UFO or an alien experience. Well, yeah. same thing could be applied to somebody with ghost stories and same thing could be called mm-hmm. Bigfoot, whatever you want to say. Um, so that's kind of my take on it is that it's all kind of the same thing. It's probably just putting on different masks for the viewer, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but It's a bit like, um, is it um, Valet, isn't it? I think he, you know, when he's look at the UFO phenomena. You know what, I've only read one of his books, but I do think that, he, uh, yeah, he touches on that kind of a thing too. And I know yeah. I've talked to other people, you know, we've done a couple episodes on DMT and you know, I don't know if you know who Dick Khan is, you wrote DMT in my cult mind. Uh, mm-hmm. he touches on these entities too, and there's no real set thing or another. It kind of just comes in waves of different stuff. You know, some people see certain things, other people see other things. It's yeah. kind of all the same thing though, you know? Um, I think that these, you know, these like the plant teachers, you know, like the ayahuasca. Yeah, they often, I think they'll engage you at the level you're at, you know, in that phenomenon and in that kind of experience that, you know, because I've talked to people who said, you know, they saw a big glowing butterfly or something, you know, and I, you know, okay, that's cool. It sounds really cool, but that is like nothing like the things that happen to me. So I wish sometimes, yeah, I just see the big glowing butterfly fly along on it and stuff. But, you know, usually it's like sort of a hardcore like download or you're making me really question the fundamental nature of reality or, or something. But then I'm a person who does ponder those questions and like spends an awful lot of his life involved in, in that quest for those understandings. So yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. It does seem there's a experience from, I guess the super, you know, the fundamental levels of reality do seem to, yeah, to twist and bend towards the individual and to where you're at and what you're needing or what you kind of want, you know, um, what's your seem that? What's your experience with DMT? Do you th- think it's some sort of a chemical gateway, like a lot of people think, um, mm-hmm. or some sort of connection? I know there's a famous instance where Terence McKenna gave uh, a Tibetan, uh, you know, whatever you want to call him, spiritual leader, Lama, whatever, uh, a hit of DMT, and this guy went on this trip, and he said that that's the closest you can get to death without dying or that's the closest you can get to the other side and still come back kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've certainly had experiences with it where I felt that, yeah, it was taking me towards death and that, you know, I had to almost a uh, spiritual level request to have some more time as a living being. Um, but that, yeah, it, there, there was certainly been a couple of occasions where there's been a light that I'm aware of is say it's maybe off to the I mean, weird look at these, but maybe off to the left and up a bit. And I think if I if I fully focus on that light, that I think that's it, I won't come back. And I, and I you know, but it's I, I genuinely have thought, well, I won't focus on that, and I will 
intuitively request to continue my physical life, which I appreciate having, um, rather than hurry into that. So I do think it takes you to the doors of death. And I, I, with certain, some of the plants, you know, other plants I've tried, I would say that I've felt what I call the clanking machinery of death begin to to start, you know, working. And there's a process, I believe that there's a familiar process to dying that we've all gone through millions of times, most likely. And therefore the, the system is familiar with it and you recognize the process. You think, aha, you know, I'm dying. Um, and that, yes, yeah, so you can be taken into those experiences and you, there's a familiarity. And that's why you kind of know, yeah, I'm dying. And people say, oh no, you were just freaking out. But you recognize you're somewhere in that process. It doesn't mean you're gonna go all the way but you're having a taste maybe of the early part of the dying process. The body cools, for example. Mm. You feel deathly cold, you know, and that you could put on all the heating you like and all yeah. the blankets. You know, your core is cold, and, and you know, and your breathing changes, your heart rhythm changes. You know, you can, you can feel that there's, you know, you are being pulled in some way in your consciousness, pulled away from your current you know, position in space, time, and reality. So for me, those are all signs of the consciousness, you know, heading into that tunnel, if you like. Um, so I do think it offers you that. It does offer you that taste of death. But then I couldn't say it does that for everyone because, again, someone else might take and say, well, I just saw that glowing butterfly. I'm like, what are you right. talking about? You know. So it's a funny one, isn't it? There's no fixed thing for anyone, but I, it certainly can offer you that. I think the D, that's what makes the DMT experience unique from other psychedelics, though, is the fact that people are seeing some of the same things or similar mm -hmm. things with these machine elves, jesters, aliens, yep. you know, entities, whatever it may be. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a commonality in a lot. If you go on Irwoods and read a lot of the stories, you'd be like, wow, mm -hmm. some of those are pretty similar. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, I think there's definitely something else, you know, like that's there's what's in front of your hand is only part of the story. We can only perceive what 2% of the universe, you know, like think about, we can't even see a lot of the rays and in, in different uh, uh, stuff, you know, even ultraviolet rays, you know, like we don't, you know, the thing can kill us, but we don't even know what's going on, you know? So. No. I mean, I think it's David Icke has said in one of his um, breakdowns, it's saying, that, you know, when you look at all these different frequencies, you know, like obviously, um, let's say infrared and ultraviolet and visible light, and, you know, then we go on into obviously things like, you know, dark energy and et cetera. Et cetera. That, uh, really, there's this minute fraction that we call like visible light, audible sound, you know, right. <laughs> and that he said, technically, we're blind. You know, you'd, you'd have to think of us as being totally blind. Right. So uh, let's get into your work now. Um, into Africa. Uh, read it. It was actually, su I didn't know what to think going in. You know, obviously when you mm -hmm. read a book, uh, you don't know what to expect. I, yeah, I'd seen yep. your wife posting on Twitter. I liked a lot of the stuff that she was posting. Um, so I, I started looking into your guys stuff and, uh, oddly enough into Africa had a lot of themes that I had been seeing in other places mm -hmm. that I really thought were thought provoking and interesting. Um, yep. one of them being the exodus out of Australia as opposed to Africa. Um, yeah. and, and I don't know if you've seen there's correlations. There's a picture going around with, uh, and I can pull it up in a little bit. I think I find it, but there's an Aborigine with uh, this marking. It's like two half circles with a line in between them. And then that same uh, pictograph is found carved into uh, one of the relief pillars at Gobekli Tepe. So yeah. um, Gobekli Tepe is at least uh, 12,000 years old. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
for there to be Aboriginal carvings on there is super unique. So Yeah, um, I, I covered that on my website, Ancient News. So if people want to have a look at that, I've got an article okay. about the link there. Um, I think originally Andrew Collins had a picture in his book. Um, and I noticed that that image was shared on a meme, and that's where I, I first saw yeah, it. That's where I said. Yeah, I had a bit of a, a closer look into that, and I found other correspondences between Gebekli Tepe and, and Northern Australia. So I have an article that's a bit longer than that, which goes, uh, which was in, it was in New Dawn magazine, basically, but I have it on my website. And I go into more detail than simply that, that one image. I show that there's actually multiple symbols that connect between Gebekli Tepe and particularly Arnhem Land in Northern Australia. And I, I feel Arnhem Land is really... This is a, a crucially important region of the world. I'm just put it that way. That my theory initially, what I put in the article is that you know, is there an Aboriginal global civilization that has disappeared? Now, what I would sort of correct that a little bit is that I don't think it was necessarily centered on Australia, um, not that particular civilization. I think it was centered on island Southeast Asia and part of Southeast Asia, and yeah, and part of Northern Australia. But that, that whole region like of Indonesia... Sundaland, kind of? Like the, what would have been Sundaland before the... Sundaland, yeah. yeah. Basically, the, the pre, pre-Younger Dryer, Sundaland, yeah, right, was, was prime real estate. You know, it's right on the equator. It was these massive plains of fertile soil with rivers, you know, on the equator uh, during an ice age. So, like, where are people heading during an ice age? I mean, you're heading to the equator. There's only right. three pieces of land on the planet which you can really, you know we want to live on during an ice age. You know, one of them obviously is Indonesia, that region, like Northern Australia, Southeast Asia. Uh, the other one, of course, is um, the edges of sort of South Africa, you know, obviously going towards the upper part of South Africa. Um, you've got obviously a band of the equator there. And then across in sort of Mexico, Central America, and the top of, you know, top of South America. Those are the three areas of the world during an ice age where humans are going to cluster, right? Right. So if you go back, say, 13,000 years, like, you should be kind of expecting people to be clustered in those areas, you know, because it was, you know, we were in a really a cold period. Uh, and then, of course, it was followed by this sudden warming, which caused the melting. But So you would have had people concentrated in these areas. Was the right? climate so, different there during that time? Like, was the climate in yeah, northern know, Australia yeah. different, not dry and arid and... Sure. Yeah, it was. It was more dry and more arid. It was colder in most of Australia. So again, I think you'd had more people in the north, um, probably much fewer down in Tasmania than there are now, you know, and in that region. Um, so you would have had people, yeah, I think clustering largely on the equator. That's not to say that there wouldn't have been outlying people, you know, that specialized in cold areas, both in Eurasia and in Australia and in Africa. But you're going to have the, the bulk of humanity you know, distributed along the equator, you know, hugging that warm zone where there's available fruit, you know, there's easy to get foods, most of the animals, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an, an, an obvious no-brainer, you know, like where do you want to live, like in the freezing tundra, like, or in the tropical area, you know, so even today we kind of, we know that, you know, we're allowed to live in some extreme environments because of our technologies, but without them, you know, we wouldn't naturally head towards those areas, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really loved Into Africa, and the, I mean, the fact that you got Graham Hancock to write your foreword is a, <laughs> a big plus, too. I love uh, yeah. his work, all of his nonfiction stuff. I have yet to get into his fiction, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think everybody kind of in this realm of 
this subject um, has different takes on it, but I think that they're to say that for sure out of Africa is the only way it can be. And I, you know, I'm on hard paleo, you know, sites and hard paleo uh, pages on Twitter and stuff. And it seems like they keep trying to push that agenda, even though once in a while, I think, I don't know how long ago there was a, um, they found an Australopithecus that was, Two million something years old, or something along those lines, close to that. Um, and and I think Graham Hancock tweeted, uh, you know, these dates keep getting older and older. We got to reassess what's going on. So it kind of fits perfectly into um, the work that you did and in into Africa because that's what the whole thing is about. You know, these these people are so old. Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah, Graham Hancock was really cool. You know, I was lucky to catch him at a moment when he, he was willing to find the time to have a look at that. Because obviously he's a very busy guy. Um, yeah, I was very quite you know fortunate. Yeah, he was willing to take the time to have a look. And, he, you know, he was really supportive. Um, if anyone has a look, they'll see that, you know, in the forward, he says, you know, this work potentially could rewrite human history. Uh, and, I, you know, obviously that's big props coming from him. He doesn't need to say that. Absolutely. You know, he doesn't owe me anything. Um, so he obviously could see within my argument the, I suppose, the strength of some of the evidence I present, really. I mean, there's parts of the book which are weaker than others, parts that are stronger than others, like in, in any, you know, argument. Um, but particularly strong is my argument for the recent out of Australia versus the recent out of Africa. You know, out of Africa theory, as most people may understand, is, is can be broken up. You know, the, the model itself is a really a catch-all, like this huge bowl full of different models and different, you know, hypotheses and theories that all go into out of Africa. But recent out of Africa really tackles the populating of Eurasia going back to around, you know, 70,000 years ago, this idea that, you know, a group of Africans moved out of East Africa approximately 70,000 years ago. They make their way into Eurasia, uh, populate in a bizarre sort of way, they sort of populate Southeast Asia and Australia first, right, which is, which is the first glaring anomaly for people because they walk out of Africa. They don't populate Europe. They don't populate Western Asia. Right? They don't populate Central Asia. Yeah? They, they appear in sort of Southeast Asia, Australasia, East Asia, right? And then they work their way backwards towards Africa, populating all those regions in reverse, eventually arriving in Europe and North Africa around about 40,000 to 45,000 years ago. Right, so that in itself, I mean, you sort of have to stop and think, like, why did I buy that? You know, when I was taught that, why didn't I see that there was a problem there? Because, you know, if they're walking out of East Africa, why is it that they, they don't settle anywhere until they've crossed the entire continent? You know, that's strange. I mean, that's really strange. Uh, and that's just one thing that's wrong with the model. You know, before you even go into the the, really the detailed genetic evidence, the archaeology and all that, which now is showing that there were humans in Australia going back at an absolute minimum 65,000 years ago, right? And, and most of those, the articles on that will say, look, 65 to 80,000, because some of the artifacts found up in... Um, in Northern Australia at the site, which has given us those dates, suggested 80,000 years was the date. But, you know, obviously conservative approach to science goes for the, you know, the, the lower end of the dating. So they've used the 65,000 year date. But there was some of the leading experts have said, look, they think that's a very conservative date when they look at that evidence themselves. And there's a few, you know, other academics said, well, we think that it's likely that the deeper end of that scale was correct. 
And there's another site down in South Australia where a, an absolutely renowned geologist, Jim Bowler, who was the guy who really was originally worked on Mungo Man, you know, and brought us the dates on Mungo Man, a very conservative geologist yeah, who brought back the dates on Mungo Man down from about 60,000 to 43,000. You know, he says that there is a shell midden down in South Australia that he thinks is 70 to 80,000 years old. Wow. Right? That. I'm thinking, you know, they're all the way down in South Australia, almost to Tasmania, right. 70 or 80,000 years ago. Well, then how old must they be in the north? Because they have, you know, the, the entry point has to be the north, right? So if they made it all the way to the bottom of this enormous continent by 70 to 80,000 years ago, like, I'm thinking it's got to be some way older dates up north, right? So there's these problems that are emerging that just do not fit with the model in which people walk out of Africa 70,000 years ago. Because unless they're getting on helicopters, right, and they're flying from East Africa straight to South Australia, and re you, know, you really start struggling with how they're doing. And in some cases, they not only have to fly, but time travel. Because it's like, well, hang on a minute. There's a real problem here. Because also, if you look at the population of Eurasia, the geneticists tell you all of our studies conclude that the Eurasians emerged around about 55,000 years ago, okay? So they think that the migrations are closer to that, around 60,000 to 50,000 years ago, based on genetics, okay? So, well, that's kind of strange, because if you've got Aboriginal people who are at least 65,000 years old, and you're telling me that the Eurasians are no older than about 55,000, like, and they're all coming from the same migration. They, they've said they, they looked into this, they said, was there multiple waves? And for a while, that was the fix. It was either a, a quick migration along the coast of, of Southern Asia, leading to Australia, and then a back migration, right, as one part of the propping this up. And the other part was multiple waves. And that, yeah, the Australians were part of a, a early wave, and that there was a later African wave. When they did the genetic tests and they looked and they found that, no, the Aboriginals and the Eurasians are from the same founding population. There's no multiple waves, right? So that's gone. The fast round South Asia, that's gone. Um, Patrick Kelly, I think he's a guy, um, Professor Patrick Kelly, I might have that back wrong, but anyway, he's a lead, you know, leading academic. He has shown that's fundamentally wrong, that they've got fossils down in Southeast Asia that are going back 80,000 to 120,000 years old in East Asia and other places, so he doesn't buy that model at all. So what you're left with then is a huge problem because you have nothing else that's shoring up this model. So you've just got these people that are there, impossibly early, and then you've got all the evidence pointing to a migration that's happening around 55,000 years ago into Eurasia. Like, I don't know, look on the map. Eurasia is in between Australia and Africa. So how on earth do these Africans manage to migrate to Australia without migrating through Eurasia, right? They arrived right. there 55,000 years ago, but they're in, they're in Australia 80,000, you're up to 80,000 or more years ago. So again, I'm not, I'm not putting out something that anyone really needs to struggle with to see why I'm finding problems in this model. The real struggle, and I think this is what Graham Hancock appreciates, is, is getting anyone in the academic community to even question recent out of Africa in any way at all, right? Because it, every article starts the same. 70,000 to 80,000 years ago, when our ancestors walked out of Africa, and right. then it'll go on to question all sorts of other stuff. Now look at this new data on Neanderthals, the new data on this. Nobody ever says, but what about that bit you started with, that fundamental assertion where you just tell us darn straight that that's what happened? 
without offering us any evidence, you know, they don't come out at the beginning and say, we know this because we have solid proof. We have the archaeology, you know, we have the genetics. Because they don't. Right. I was saying the for it. I've been saying it for years. We need to burn these old history books. Fucking they do have to be burned. And that's why people don't like it because they feel their careers <laughs> on it. You know, it's an embarrassment. Oh, well, as like much as can't even question Egypt, you know, you, you question Egypt, they find that everybody loses their shit. It's like, yeah, I mean, you can figure if they got the difference between us and you know, an academic is on Monday they have to face all those students and their colleagues that they've been telling them, you know, oh, I know all about this, you know, I know everything, I've got books on this, you know, my whole career is based on it. And the chair say, oh, yeah, it was all a crop, I had it <laughs> all completely wildly wrong. Like, yeah, I'm kind of a fool. You know, and well, that's, kind of what, that's kind of what we always do, though. You know, you just got to accept that we've learned more and then you can move forward with it, isn't that? That's the idea. That's science. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in the end, some of the academics will be brave enough. Also, I think that a lot of them are, are scared because the leaders in their fields are telling them this is how it is. And they don't want to sort of, you know, put their head up and go against these, these inner clique, you know, of these, these people that have been around for the last... 40 odd years proponent, you know, saying that this out of Africa's, you know, it's worked like this, it's worked like that. And that, you know, these junior people don't want to go up against their senior colleagues saying, but you know, I think you're completely wrong. So it may be a case of some of these people dying off and then others, younger ones saying, well, look, you know, we don't really agree with that anymore. Well, I mean, I think science is fucked up anyways, because even when there is tangible proof for something, they still try and find ways to debunk it. That's just the nature of it. And I kind of do think you need that in some regards for some things, because, yeah. look, that's kind of how we got to where we are. But I think, you know, if you're romancing the idea of it, you know, the scientific revolution with, you know, like Newton and, uh, you know, all those guys, you know, Bruno and all those guys, like, thinking outside the box kind of thing is kind of also what got us here too. So you need to marry science with philosophy, with kind of this, you know, romance of the whole subject. Um, But uh, yeah, so into Africa though, um, what I found was interesting was, is just like you said, the correlation. And look, if you watch, you know, we talk about ancient aliens, I say like 80% of it, is bullshit but then there's yeah. like 20 percent of it that's and, and i'm not shitting at it because i do think it is a catalyst for people to go learn about stuff on their own sure um, uh, and that's kind of what happened with me too you know like t- 10 years ago i was like oh that's kind of mm-hmm. cool and then you look into it and you're like oh that's not right but there is something weird about this other thing you know yeah um so yeah. i think that that's a, a good uh part of it but you know, on, on, if you go on there, you know, it talks about, you know, when they have the Aboriginal episodes and stuff like that, you know, they always tell the story of the dream dancing with their ancestors from 50,000 years ago and the rainbow serpent coming down and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when it ties, well, the way it ties into your work, though, is you're actually giving scientific proof to back mm-hmm. up these stories, these oral traditions that they have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's distinguishing this from, um, other ancient civilizations is like, you know, the Egyptians had hieroglyphs, you know, the Greeks wrote everything down, you know, like the aboriginals kept an oral tradition, which is probably actually more powerful because when you're storytelling the whole time, it keeps, you know, it's like a game of telephone and there might be some stuff in between there that gets lost or changed or whatever. But I think for the most part, it's probably the most accurate thing because you don't have to interpret anything. I agree. Because I think one of the things you have then, especially if you have, um, 
like with the Aboriginal cultures, you know, and obviously you've got multiple nations. Uh, they do have overlapping stories, you know, some of them, the dreaming stories. But, you know, you obviously got regional stories. But when you have, say, in any group, you have multiple record keepers, you know, and the idea is they try and keep them as accurate as they can. So say if you have, you know, a dozen record keepers within your group, you know, even if one of them tries to, like, make up some bullshit, Right. Like the other 11 are going to be like, well, we're not passing that on to anyone. That's bullshit. That didn't happen. Whereas like if something's written down on a tablet and we find it, and all we have is that tablet, we don't know if that's bullshit or not. You know, we just, right. we just read it, what was written on it, and we have to hope that someone was being truthful. Whereas if you've got an oral history that's being passed down in, you know, faithfully as possible by multiple people within a group, and you're checking with these different people, finding, hey, you know, the stories really correspond really well. You know, there's like little differences here and there, but, you know, and in some cases, you know, they went off and they found, you know, that there were stories say like an object fell from the sky and they might've called it something like, you know, a spirit or whatever, but they went to the place, they had a look where the story is centered on and they find a, a crater from like 30,000 years ago, yeah. right? So it's like, well, hang on a minute. You're saying this is just mythology, but you follow the dreaming story and you find the crater from the thing that fell from the sky. Right. You know, so that's not bullshit, that is it? It's a real event that, yes, they've, they've, they've made it into a story to make it more interesting to remember and pass on, but the core information on which the story is based is valid and is real. And they find this again and again. They found stories about, you know, flooded lands on, on the edges of Australia that were above water 20,000 years ago and stuff like that. So, you know, these these oral records are going back that far, like 10, 20, 30, right. 40 plus, you know, thousand years ago amongst Aboriginals. Now you don't see that anywhere else on the planet. So, I mean, they are hands down, they got the oldest story narratives of any populations living on the planet right now that are just passed on orally because oral traditions in other areas can be pretty old. I mean, I'm not saying there's no right. old oral histories like amongst say Native Americans and stuff. But so far, I don't know of any that they found which trace back to events going back, say, before 12,000 years ago or something, or much before that. You know, so the Aboriginals seem to be hands down, have the oldest oral histories. Don't they think, isn't there some oral history on, what is it, Uluru, that big um, uh, mountain plateau, that that was a comet or an asteroid that hit, and that's what started the whole thing? And so it's almost like ancient panspermia um, tradition being told through a story, which is actually kind of interesting because that's stuff that we're talking about now that we weren't talking about, you know, before Carl Sagan. So that's right. Yeah. Panspermia now is becoming a much more accepted, you know, legitimate field. I mean, even in like within the last few days, there was that article that came out saying that they found life, you know, signs of life going back 4.2 billion years. They think that that means that life was probably here 4.5 billion years ago. Right. I mean, the planet formed 4.6 billion years ago, right? right? You know, the crust is just forming like 100, like 100 million years later. You know, it's cooling. There's a crust. There's probably a bit of liquid water. But, you know, this is, is an inhospitable place for life. And yet life just appears straight away. As soon as it was possible for life to be here and survive, right. it appeared. Now, if that doesn't smack of seeding life on the planet rather than a lengthy period, you know, of chance eventually leading to an organism, I, I think that, you know, panspermia is looking pretty, 
pretty viable at that point because you're like, well, hang on a minute. You're not really giving it hundreds of millions of years for this random chance event to happen. You're saying, like, as soon as planets form, life emerges. Like, right. what the hell is that about? That doesn't seem to make any sense because not when you look at the complexity of you know, both the protein system um, and also the, the code within the DNA. And all, you know, you've got, two, as they say, two entirely different systems, really, that merged together to give a self-replicating, you know, DNA, um, the way it codes proteins and stuff. That you need two mind-bogglingly complex systems to have spontaneously emerged at the same time, and they're each codependent, right? So they, they have the to emerge at the same time. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty wild, you know. There's the famous uh, thing that this Maurice always talks about this in here when oh, yeah. <laughs> when uh, they talk about the probability of DNA just popping out of nowhere and it's like mm-hmm. a tornado whipping through a junkyard and assembling a 747 out of all the stuff that's in the junkyard. Like that's yeah. the probability of DNA just popping up. So I think so. I mean, if, if Francis Crick, you know. As the guy, you know, one of the main guys that came up, you know, with at least with the, the physical form of DNA, right. you know, even he came to the conclusion you know, that he was most likely delivered here from space. Whether and he was on LSD too, by the way, for anybody yeah, listening. Supposedly, yeah, supposedly he saw the structure on LSD, which doesn't surprise me. Um, but yeah, you know, he came to that conclusion as well. And I, you know, and obviously others, you know, have come to the conclusion. And obviously, there's a few um, great astrologers, you know, astronomers and. Um, space physicists and all the rest of it have come to the conclusion of that, you know, it's highly likely that, you know, that life emerged, you know, in space somewhere, whether on another planet or, you know, on a comet or whatever, or designed by an alien intelligence. Again, you still have to go back to a point where life has to begin, physical life, whether on an alien world or here. But, but it need not have been DNA that gave rise to the first life form in space. Because let's say that there was a first physical form, a first kind of, you know, physical life, but it was not DNA-based. It was based on a, a simpler form of, you know, a, a form of um, f- foundation. Right. But then later on over time, one of these organisms has become highly intelligent and it's designed DNA. So, it, so people say, you're just moving the argument back. Well, not necessarily, because you can change the argument. Because you can say, well, DNA, yes, is mind-boggling complex, but we don't know if the first life form in the universe was based on that level of complexity. It may have arisen in a much simpler way. Personally, I suspect that it was a non-physical being that found it was able to manifest itself into physical matter. And therefore, you don't need, you know, some of this, uh, how does a rock pool turn into life? Right. If there's a form of intelligence that worked out that from its dimension or its level of existence, it was able to play with matter and enter into matter. Which, if you look at a lot of the mythology and these ancient legends, it's pretty much what they say, and it is that the physical world was impregnated from the spirit world. Right. right? And so, if there are beings that are non-physical, you know, other dimensional, whatever, and they can do this, then you can forget about you know them needing DNA and all the rest of this. That they may be able to use simply the, the the powers of consciousness itself to animate matter and to become more complex. And so, if one of these beings later says, "Well, and now we want to design," you know, a new type of life, or we want to terraform planets, which is why I suspect DNA is a terraforming technology, that we want to terraform planets. So we design a code, we design software for this. We need to house the software. So, you know, through their advanced, you know, bioengineering sciences, they design a housing, you know, because really DNA, yes, I mean, 
the, the, the spiral, you know, this the, the helix and all that. Yeah, it's very interesting. But but what's really and all, you know and what that's made of? Very interesting. But what's really interesting there is the code. Because I mean, if I say to you, look, here's a CD. Look, CDs right. are amazing. Look look how you know great it is the technology of a CD. But like, yeah, that's really cool. But what about the information on the CD? Because it's the software that is running on my CD that is really intelligent. You know, it's really what you need to be looking at. Not just aha, we've discovered the CD and what it's right. made of, what metals are in it, you know, that it can deflect light to them. Yeah, but then you're missing the point. Because, yes, the CD is a wonderful technology, but it's the code on it that really that's matters. the jams are at, yeah, man. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the, the materialists like to stop at. We've solved it because we found, we found the shape of the DNA molecule and we know what it's made of. Okay, tell me how the code coded itself, right? Tell me that out of nowhere that this code coded itself and it's able to self-modify and is able to, you know, terraform a planet from a barren rock and give it an atmosphere, give it all the forms of life in the oceans, the land, all from this one simple code, well, one simple molecule, but with this code, which is unbelievably complex and unbelievably intelligent, which seems to be able to this very rapidly adapt to situations, you know, very rapidly in some cases. The idea of it being very slow has been shown to be not correct. I mean, there's been experiments where people have deliberately... Um, impacted plant growth you know they, they've damaged genes in a plant and what they found is the plants managed to, to create new genes or pull out ways from the junk dna or so called junk dna they find information within it to keep themselves alive and to grow despite being fundamentally changed at the genetic level that they're able to go through their code and find a patch now what the hell is that about right i mean <laughs> i mean that looks pretty I would say artificial intelligence. To me, it's artificial intelligence because when we look at the definitions of artificial intelligence, really a lot of the things that we, we askew to that, you can put onto the DNA and say, well, hang on, DNA does all the things that we expect of an artificial intelligent program, right? It's able to look through itself, fix itself, adapt itself, you know, seems to be aware of the environments it's put into, you know, <laughs> aware of the vessels it is contained by, you know, and adapt itself. So, I mean, there's something really, really weird going on with that code. Do you think? Uh, okay, so I was watching. Um, <laughs> Sorry. There's a, no, no, no. There's a um, a clip on Ancient Aliens from this last season with Andrew Collins, and he's doing an experiment with these actual scientists. They're sending mm-hmm. balloons up into the atmosphere just above, in like the very tip of space, and they're collecting um, samples of space, like the ether. And then when they brought it back down. Um, Basically, what happens is, is stuff can't get out of our um, our atmosphere. Yeah. But they did a test, and stuff might be able to get in. And the stuff that they collected that might be able to get in yeah. um, actually contained organic compound, potentially uh, molecules. So yeah. um, the fact that what you're saying we could be constantly being seeded right now—that's what evolution is—is is just this constant raining of um, mm-hmm. stuff that we can't see, and it, it's sure. completely altering stuff. Yeah, particularly retroviruses, because I mean, we now know that you know, there's, there's quite a large number of scientists now that are saying that, yeah, there's a fair chance that retroviruses may be raining from space and that, you know, that they've seen what appears to be, you know, signatures of retroviruses in comet material. And also in the upper atmosphere, there's, there's huge volumes of retroviruses, right, just floating around that rain down, you know, even some of the disease, you know, outbreaks have been considered to be due to these raining viruses. Now, we also know that there's horizontal gene transfer from retroviruses. It's, it's, it's apparent in basically all organisms, right? right? That we know that now there's a couple of hundred 
um, genes in the human you know system or you know is it genes or certainly there's elements they found you know that are from these retroviruses and they found you know there's important you know fundamental aspects of the human sort of system which are given to us by this horizontal gene transfer from retroviruses. So, I mean, for example, let's just say an advanced intelligence wants to, to you know, change humans. It doesn't need to come here and do an experiment. It can literally just put retroviral spores that have been modified you know, into our upper atmosphere, let them rain down, let them enter into the system, you know, and that they then, once they're within us, they exchange information, you know, the DNA level, right. and give us you know, new code. I mean, that's the bizarre thing is that, you know, the code is interactive. The code of the human is is interactive with the code of the bacteria and the viruses. So there's this really strange um, factor that you know we didn't really understand until you know quite recently that you know a lot of what we are is thanks to you know viruses and stuff. I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, I am so. definitely. <laughs> well, before we get into the hybrid human things, we're kind of trending in that direction sure. right now. I just want to touch one more point on Indo Africa. Um, the thing that I liked the most about reading it is you kind of put it into context and into scale. Like we think about all the stuff evolution as just like this blip on the fucking radar. Mm -hmm. But in reality, um, you do a good job of conveying, look, you know, like what seven, seven million, you know, uh, years ago is the first, you know, and then we branched off what a hundred thousand years ago or seven, eight, seven, eight hundred thousand years ago, um, to, you know, the, yeah, the, uh, Neanderthals, the Denisovians and the homo sapiens mm -hmm. sapiens. Um, but just the fact that we look at ourselves in such high regard, and we've only been in this modern style civilization, if you want to say 3000 BC, ancient Egypt or ancient Sumerian, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but it, we're nothing in the span of time. Yet we look at these other beings as inferior or whatever. But in reality, they were roaming the earth a lot longer than we have been. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Um... I think it's Noel Harari says in his book, In Sapiens, you know, Brief History of Humanity, or whatever, that, you know, he sort of points out that, you know, if you look at Homo erectus, I mean, it was around, you know, for like a couple of million years. I mean, and it, you know, they, they traveled the planet. I mean, by the looks of it now, later erectus was probably able to build boats, uh, probably able to communicate, um, that they weren't, you know, as primitive as people assumed. Um, but they also, they weathered like two million years. I mean, and as Esau says, is it likely that we, Homo sapiens, will weather two million years? Like, looking at us now, like, it's a big stretch to think that we're going to weather two million years. Right. So, I mean, yeah, we, we, we ought to sort of take our hats off to another human form that kind of managed that, that record. You know, particularly as they, they are likely to be at least, you know, an ancestor of ours. I don't necessarily say they are the only direct ancestor, but certainly I would say we, we are, you know, descended from at least some of these, you know, Homo erectus. But they, they had a, you know, it's a remarkable achievement, isn't it? To, and they didn't even have to change much. They didn't adapt right. much. Um, for about a million years, the form didn't change a lot, you know? They were quite happy in their niche, and they were doing quite well. So I don't know that, yeah, that we're going to be doing so much better now that we seem to be destroying our environment, you know, and, um, and, and heading towards a quick transition to post-biological, probably, or post-Homo sapiens, at least. Because, I mean... It's hard to see that we won't even modify ourselves, uh, whether technologically or, or genetically, in, oh, the, in the near future. 
Mm. Everybody's yeah, everybody's scary, seen man. Black Mirror. We know what the fuck's coming. Yeah, there's you know there's some problems coming with that stuff because you know <laughs> the genie is out of the bottle. We've opened yeah. you know we've opened Pandora's box, and there's some people that you know we know there's people in labs who will do it no matter what. I mean, we can put down laws, you can put down regulations. Let's be honest, there's people in labs now <laughs> that are going all the way with this stuff. You know, they are they are not going to put the brakes on. Um, and like before people even understand these technologies they're already going to be well advanced into the use, you know? So we don't really know what, what humanity will be like in a couple of generations. It's certainly not the people that have access to the technologies and the, you know, the, the biosciences that, you know, can easily be two species on this planet, you know, remnant homo sapiens right. and this, you know, homo sapiens, you know, 2.0 or whatever it's going to be, like homo technicus or something that, you know, half cyborg genetically modified, you know, God knows what. So, well, yeah, there's going to be a line drawn in the sand, and you're going to choose. Do you want to stay bio, you know, biological, or I suspect it will come to that. To be honest, yeah, I suspect there will be a time where it's like, you know, are you, you know, are you with us or or not? You know what I mean? Are you part of our species, or are you staying in that remnant, you know, backward Homo sapiens species? You know what I mean? Because once <laughs> those people decide that they're better and that they're improved, then what are we? we anyone who's still a homo sapiens will be considered essentially a, a, a fallback, retard, you know, a, a vestige of a, of a gone species. So, I mean, right. how would they view anyone that remains homo sapiens? I mean, it's easy to see that people are looking down and thinking, well, they're, you know, they're no better than chimps, you know, so right. why are we carrying them along? So, I don't know, I can see some real problems with that. There might be people in the Pacific Northwest see a human... And think it's a Bigfoot type animal. <laughs> Gigantopithecus. Yeah. Maybe that's what Bigfoot is. It's the, the, the last <laughs> yeah. the lot, you know, hiding. Yeah, saying we didn't want to join. Um, some people think Elon Musk already has a neural lace implanted in his head. And if you watch the Joe Rogan interview, it does seem like he's like pauses and is like Musk compute and then says some profound thing afterwards. Yeah. You well, know. he might be activating more now because this guy needs to do something. Right? <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's there's some stuff going on there for sure. Um, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, that was my big thing about the into Africa. The other thing, too, I wanted to bring up is these Australian artifacts found in like Turkey. Like, obviously, you've got the carvings on Gobekli Tepe, but, you mm-hmm. know, the Chiringa stones. Um, I think there was a couple of them found and Graham Hancock talks about it on a couple of things found. It's, it's like not that far away from there, too. Uh, and what Chiringa stones are is that's like ancient art form where they've got little circles and squiggly lines on them and stuff like that too. Um, yeah. But what do you think the significance is that? I know we're talking about much older stuff. Obviously, we're talking about way yeah. before that right now. But what do you think the you think that there was some center point? That's what Gobekli Tepe is is some meeting ground for all sorts of different ancient people or. Well, the way I look at it is, I mean, I guess to give people a bit of an overview, I know I'm jumping around a bit because obviously I have oh, a lot of interest, like you do. Yeah. I mean, we all have interest in a lot of subjects. Um, but, yeah, if, if we look at it as that, in my view, we know that humans had reached Southeast Asia, island Southeast Asia, by at least a million years ago, okay? Well, that's, that's a fact. You know, they found the tools, you know, on Flores. You know, we know they were in that area. You know, I argue that within a couple of hundred thousand years, let's say within a hundred thousand years, it's inevitable that some of those humans would have made it to Australia, right? Because if you're, even if you say that humans are moving south by accident, which is one of the, the academic claims, is they've been washed off of the mainland, washed to an island, washed right. to another island, 
you know, and so on. It's about seven journeys to reach Flores, okay? They also know that these, some of these early humans reached Sulawesi um, and probably some of the other islands, right? So they're moving around in island Southeast Asia from a million years ago onwards. I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect them to have reached this enormous continent to the south in the direction that the currents flow. Keep in mind, it's a southbound current. So if you're being washed off an island again, where are you going to go? Eventually, someone's going to end up right on the north coast of Australia. Right. Right. Within a reasonable amount of time, even if you're leaving it to tsunamis, washing them off or them on a log or... I think they probably had watercraft, but I'm, I don't need to argue that. Flora, they, Flora's was the Hobbit-style hominin, right? That's right. They had okay. hobbits there, and they've tried to argue that the hobbits are a dwarf a dwarf form of Homo erectus, that there was island dwarfism. But what they found was that the older fossils on the island were smaller than the later ones, right? right. So that's the kind of problem if you're arguing for island right. dwarfism, because yeah. it seems like they were getting bigger. Yeah. So, and they also found that the, they don't think that these bones represent an evolution of Homo erectus, but instead an evolution of something a bit more like Homo, um, uh, I'm trying to think of these early, one of the very early Homo, basically a, a, one of the very early types of Homo. Gotcha. Um, and they think it's an unknown type, but they, they think that there was something probably almost to the point of an Australopithecine, you know, something quite archaic, had managed to get all the way down to, to Flores a million years ago, and it wasn't a Homo erectus, and it went on to become these Florensiensis, right? But we also know that erectus was in, in Indonesia as well. So let's say you've got at least two forms of hominins in that area, okay? These dwarfs and, you know, the taller erectus. Either one or both could easily end up in Australia. I suspect both, no reason why not, that by about 900,000 years ago, you're going to have them in Australia. This is my argument. People will say, well, where are those first fossils? Two problems. The first thing is, all of the northern coast and most of the areas surrounding these islands has been flooded by these sea level rises, right? So all your prime landing sites are deep underwater. So we're not going to get those fossils from those first, you know, coastal hugging hominins that arrived there. There's no chance. Right? Massive areas of land have been lost. Massive. Right? So the second problem we have is that the geology of Australia is considered to be poor for preserving fossils, Right. So that's right. another reason why we don't get a lot of searching for fossils in Australia. It's a lot easier in Africa, in, in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Rift Valley, where, you know, the fossils preserve quite well. So obviously, people want to make finds. If you go out on a dig, you want to find something. So do you go to a place where you think you can make a good name for yourself, right. or where you'll look for 20 years and find nothing, right? So, so there's been a glut of African finds and not much in Australia, right? But that doesn't mean there's nothing there. It just means it's very hard to find. Right. So what we have then is an evolution of, I believe, of these first hominins that have reached Australia and that after about 800,000 years ago, prox, and obviously this crosses over into the other book as well, but in both books, that 800,000 years ago, we know that there's a, a sudden change in early hominins. The brains suddenly get larger. Um, the bodies change. There's, there's, there's starting to be you know, a, a radical shift, let's say, in multiple ways. The genes, we now know the genes are changing. Multiple genes are changing that affect the brain, that affect other aspects of the body, but particularly the brain, um, all around that time. I argue that really that this is the beginning of Homo sapiens, you know. They're not like us, but these are, let's say, pre-sapiens or something like that. I mean, I don't know what to call We have archaic sapiens. Let's, I don't know what you'd call these, pre-archaic sapiens, maybe. Right. I'm going to say that this is a different group of humans to Homo erectus or 
or to these other ancestral Florences. These are our true ancestors, right? So to me, Homo sapiens begins in Australia. Now, okay, to be more like us, we're talking about several hundred thousand years later. About 200,000 years to 300,000 years ago, we have the beginnings of archaic Homo sapiens, um, and these are already out around the world. I think that from about perhaps 700,000 years onwards, there's a back migration from Australia with hominids moving into Southeast Asia, into East Asia particularly, where they're now finding all kinds of what they call anomalous transitional fossils. Right. We seem to resemble a mix of Homo erectus and Homo sapiens. And they're finding a lot of these in China, right? They're not finding any in Africa. Mm-hmm. They're finding loads in China, these transitional fossils. Like, why is that? You know, why aren't we finding them in Africa, where we're right. supposedly becoming Homo sapiens? We're not. Are you, the first Homo sapiens, archaic Homo sapiens in Africa, goes about 300,000 or a little bit more, maybe 400,000 years ago in that region and in the, you know, in the, in sort of what's now the Levantine region and that, you know, they're finding some evidence of what may be these you know, early archaic sapiens at 400,000 years ago, say. But the Chinese have them, you know, these transitionals at 700,000. Right. So, again... The evidence is pointing down towards East and Southeast Asia and Australasia, which is why I favor, of course. Um, and then over time, you have an expansion again into Africa. And over time, evolution is continuing. There's also mixing between all these populations. So you've got an evolving pre-Homo sapiens population, which is now global at this point, say around about 500,000 years ago. You've got global, you know, they are stretching right across and they mix between each other, these groups. So although you'd have slightly different looks some of them, their genetics is going to be related. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, what happens later on is there is there's a couple of major climate events. Two hundred thousand years ago, there's a massive climate event. You know, this wipes out a lot of the humans. Again, it, it brings them back to certain areas. We know that Africa retains a, hom- a population of of these early sapiens. It seems, and so does I believe um, East Asia, Southeast Asia, Australasia. Well, and Lake Toba, one, yeah, Lake Toba, 75,000 years ago. No, that's uh, another one. That's the second one. So at 200,000, we've had a, a big climate, a global climate event, and then another at 70,000. 70,000 is the one that's really important because that's when we have really the resetting, the resetting of Eurasia. Yeah, what's that the estimate of, of people? Like 10,000 people were left or something like that? Yeah, they think yeah, it may go down to about 10,000 breeding pairs. Um, and the assumption was always that the only living people, you know, the only humans left were in sub-Saharan Africa, right? And that, you know, actually for quite a long time, the, the assumption was, in fact, that, that this event had impacted Southern Africa because they said, like, in the human genome, there's evidence of this, you know, this massive die-off. Right. And they know that there's this Lake Toba event. And, right, and so they thought, well, okay, it must be that, you know, it, it killed off a load of people living in South Africa because that's the only place where humans were, right? So you've got right. a kind of closed-loop logic, yeah? Because if, you've only, if you only believe humans are in one place, the event has to impact them in that place, right? Right. So then now, recently, they found that actually Lake Toba didn't have a very strong impact in sub-Saharan Africa. And so the scientists were like, well, hmm, because humans are only there... And if it didn't impact them there, then it can't be the Lake Toba event that impacted them. Because, right. again, you've got closed-loop logic, right? So right. instead of thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on, hmm. maybe we've got this wrong. Maybe there's humans actually elsewhere that are also ancestral to us who are impacted by this. Right. But instead they're saying, no, we need to look for another event that's on a similar scale around that time. <laughs> what? 
another event like right. the, the the biggest supervolcanic eruption in two million years and you're right. going to say it's not that one because it doesn't fit your model you know instead of revising your model right so this is the kind of bullshit that you deal with because instead what they need to look at is say well hang on a minute let's say there are people in southeast asia and australia which we now know there were because those aboriginal sites again sixty-five thousand to eighty thousand years ago right right and remains in Southeast Asia 73,000 years ago, India 75,000 years ago, now, you know, East Asia 80,000 to 20,000 years ago. So really, we know there's people there, yeah? So Lake Toba's gone boom, it's killed off most of these people, it's, the, the smoke has drifted to the Northwest, they now know in climate models, it's gone across um, Southeast Asia, across into Eurasia, and so you can imagine there's, there's, there's huge amounts of acid rain, there's dust, there's climate cooling, there's, you know, an intense die-off, intense cooling. It's already the Ice Age, and you've got intense cooling within the Ice Age. So this is like a really horrific event. Right. So you can, you can imagine people are dying off in droves. But the people in South Africa, right, they're largely okay, because what they now know is that the dust cloud envelops the northern hemisphere of the planet. Okay, so if you're south of the equator, you're pretty much all right. I'm not going to say you're not impacted. You are, but you can weather that storm if you're south of the equator. Right. So the sub-Saharan Africans are all right. Yeah, and so are anyone basically from most of island Southeast Asia downwards. They're also going to be okay, right? And funnily enough, that's where we find, you know evidence now showing that they are there and that's why i can argue this repopulation because what happens is you've got two trapped founder populations what we see with them is what's called the founder effect we can see that there is um genetic lines that have disappeared there's greater variance that has vanished from the human genome at that time right and not necessarily as much in africa as they thought i think more of it's from from southeast asia and australia and remember eurasians yeah right go back to these aboriginal people so when you look at the african genome and when you look at the Eurasian genome, there's, there's some inconsistencies, right? And they say, well, hang on, why aren't we seeing this in the African genome? You know, it's like, we look at the Eurasians, we've seen this loss of diversity. They're trying to explain it. And they said, but the Africans don't seem to have this. And yet right. they're the ancestors of Eurasians. Well, hang on a minute. Maybe we need to look at the Aboriginals. See, do they lose some of it? Maybe we need to look at Northern Australia and see, do they lose it? And one of the things you find down in, in Aboriginal Australia is genetic lines, which have no correspondence to Africa, right? They're right. unique to Australia, yeah? <laughs> How's that working out? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, and on top of that, you find that, and this is one of the, the clinchers, really, for people who want to understand. I'm going to go back to Quebec. I'm circling around to get Quebec. No, no, I, I feel it. I feel it coming on. Is that you ask, is that there's two haplogroups, that are really genetic haplogroups that are really important in this discussion, right? M and N, which are both on the maternal line. And then on the, the paternal line, there's a haplogroup, which is um, haplogroup um, HT, I think it's, but you've got a, a male line. So basically, when you look at the Eurasians, they all stem from these, these haplogroups, okay? You also find the aboriginals, right? They, all, right. they have the same haplogroups, MN and also this so CT. Uh, whereas in Africa, M and N were never considered to have been present in Africa until more modern times when they arrived from Eurasia. And yet... We are arguing that Eurasians are coming out of a haplogroup in Africa, which is L3, okay? L3 is closely related to M and N. I don't want to get this too complicated, but it's important for people to understand this because they will see this in articles, that haplogroup L3 is ancestral to Eurasians, and it is the ancestor of M and N, okay? Gotcha. 
But when you look a bit closer at the papers on this, what they actually say is, well, the three are very closely related. They seem to appear at the same time, and therefore we assume that they come from the same event, uh, and that it's probably in East Africa. Don't know that it is, probably. Others have argued that it may be the Near East or even South Asia, right? And then when you look at the other African lineages, L1, L2, L4, L5, and L6, they are very distantly related to L3. L3 is in a clade of its own, it's very close to M&M, &M, very different okay. to the other African groups, found initially in East Africa, right? And if you look on a map where it's first found, you'll find that it's near to a place called the Bab el-Mandab Straits, right? And the Bab el-Mandab is one of the two main ways into and out of Africa, right? And these, this haplogroup, L3, appears in East Africa 73,000 years ago, exactly at the time of the late Toba eruption, yeah? Near to one of the points, into Africa, into which climate refugees will be fleeing from the, the fallout of the Lake Toba eruption. Because they are being pushed where, west. Uh, isn't that where right? the Dog Dogon were located too? The... They're being further west. But I mean, the, the initially we're talking about the, um, well, the ancestors of the Khoisan people, right? Okay. These, or the Bushmen. Yeah. And as you find that there's this anomalous appearance of a new haplogroup, well, sorry, two new haplogroups, CT on the male line and L3 on the female line. Okay. Right? That's, a, that's a problem because the mutation rates of the male and female lines differ by a factor of 10, right? Okay. So how are they telling us that these two haplogroups appear by a mutation, right? At the same time as M&M, so you've got like four mutations, right? Right. Which would be all happening at different times, yeah? All happening at the same time, the same place. It's like, hang on a minute, there's a simpler solution here. You've got a Eurasian population, which is largely L3, M&M, right? right? Some of them are being pushed west, right? And they are fleeing into Africa. Because at the same time you see these haplogroups appear, there is a cultural shift in East Africa in which you see the appearance of new paints, new tools, and bows and arrows, right? Bows and arrows, that's a, that's a super advanced technology. Suddenly right. appears out of nowhere, alongside these genes. <laughs> so at what point do you say, this is a migration? Right. It's not an evolutionary event. This is an incursion into Africa by refugees from Toba. The dates match. The, the, the archaeology matches. The genetics matches. You know, and yet, if I put this out to scientists, and I have, and I send them books, I send them articles, I reach out to them, none will publicly engage. Even the skeptics will not attack my book. Think about that. Why is there no skeptic science website saying, Bruce is an idiot. His theory <laughs> is junk. Look at it. Look you can at back, it. Up your, uh, back up your research. Do. Nobody talks about it. They, they have it. I've talked to scientists, leading scientists. You know they've said? I've heard of your book. <laughs> like leading academics yeah. in this field say, yes, I've heard of your book. Right before when I contact them. So what's that about? So they, they know about my work. Yeah, well, don't they, you trumpet uh, in the book, uh, I think it was a Dr. Roberts is her name, where she is talking about how we are, like what you were saying about us coming from a different homo sapien, which is was already walking upright was already homo yeah. erectus as opposed to so isn't she's a real not that you're not you know your research isn't real but just her credentials are you know she's well, an she's actual yeah. right so i mean it's not like there's nobody out there that isn't doing this kind of work they are they're probably just laying low you know they don't want all the heat from you know and and they modify little bits you know because Paradigm change is a problem. You know, if you modify little bits of the of the existing paradigm, you're okay. You know, you can right. modify a little tweak here, a little tweak there, but but once you go to change the paradigm entirely, 
then you're out in the cold, you know, on your own. Because people are like, oh, hang on a minute. He's not just saying, let's just tweak a little bit of data here. He's saying that one of our holy cows in this field is total bullshit without any supporting evidence and with all conflicting evidence against it. And like, right. so nobody wants to, yeah, nobody wants to come out there and say, yeah, hang on a minute, you know, this is like the whole field that we're in, like the region out of Africa theory part of it is bunk. You know, it's, it's strange because you would think somebody somewhere must understand that they could probably go on and get a Nobel Prize or something just for stealing my work right. and improving on it and then going public with it, you know, and saying, well, I've got the PhD, you know, I, I went and did some extra tests, you know, right. I've proved it. So it's my, you know, it's my prize because I can't win. I'm not, I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize. Right. Like an ancient alien well, type could. guy. You never you know, know, bro. You never know. Yeah, you could, I'm, man. I'm voting yeah. for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, so that's, I mean, what I get is there anyway. So I think the listeners can kind of get, you know, where I'm getting at is that there's, there's an obvious pre-existing Eurasian, uh, Southeast Asian, East Asian, and Australasian population, okay? Right. That's not taking anything away from the Africans. The Africans are there. They're fully modern humans in the South of Africa, too. But there's also Eurasians and also these Australasians, and that they all go back to a common root in what was a global population of these early archaic Homo sapiens, right? So we do all go back to the same root. It just doesn't go back to the same place that people thought it went back to. Right. But then after 70,000 years ago, yes, you have this obliteration and you have just the South Africans, the Australasians, and a few probably people up in Indonesia, okay? Wait a while, the climate recovers. About 55,000 years ago, Aboriginal people moved north. The Africans are still trapped because there's climate problems. This has been identified. Severe drought, severe cold, devastating climate issues continue from about 73,000 on to about at least about 50,000 years ago right okay. blocking humans into africa so it's not that they they probably would have tried to go north but it was a barren hellscape right right the aboriginals their door opens earlier right they're able to start moving across island southeast asia and into mainland asia and then they they head in two directions this is what my the models show us what happens is we have a split there's one group that populates east asia Right. And another group, which I believe does follow the coastlines of, of South Asia, but not going from the way they think, you know, west to east, but east to west. And right. that, yes, there is a group that heads towards Western Asia and becomes the ancestors of modern Eurasians, or modern, sorry, modern Europeans and West Asians. Gotcha. The other group becomes the ancestors of East Asians. Right. So there's a split. And we can see that split in the genetics about 50,000 years ago. Right. So and then later on, these people obviously are still connected, you know, because they're coming from a shared root, a shared culture, a shared understanding in, in Ireland, Southeast Asia and Australia. And so they are forming a one population forms in, in what we call Sunderland. Yeah. You have a large cluster of people that will start to make their homes in that really rich, incredibly fertile land yeah, of Sunda with this enormous um, low shelf, which goes out much further than what we see today, a vast almost continent-sized land was there. Right, right. Um, and then up until about 20,000 years ago, everything's all good there, you know, but then we start having this climate shift as we move into the Younger Dryas, okay? And so we can't know today exactly how advanced or how incredible the, the civilizations of Sunda might have been. But I'm going to go out there and say that as far as I'm concerned, this is Atlantis. You know, this is the prototype Atlantis, if you like. Right. You know, there may have been... Atlantis is, 
you know, around the world. But right. when we look at a place which could have been home to a, a vast culture, which was advanced and which was leveled by the sea, then yeah, Sunda really fits that bill because you've got it there, you know, uh, enormous landmass. It gets swallowed by the sea around 12,000 right. years ago. The people there are going to be displaced, right? And they're going to take with them their cultural and, cultural and spiritual understandings, right? And their knowledge. And that's what I see we see in places like Gebekli Tepe, is we see a knowledge transfer that is occurring as these people move away from Sunda and start spreading out. Some of them, I believe, also head into the Americas, and they join this wave of what's called the Clovis people. Right. We know that there's people moving up from Southeast Asia around about 14,000 to 12,000 years ago. There's people, for some reason, migrating north, and I'm going to say it's because their lands are getting taken by the sea. Right. right? And as they pass Lake Baikal... Yeah. They meet with Lake Baikal's people, who are a kind of proto-European type people. They're lighter skinned. They, they're the first people with lighter colored hair. Um, they have the genes for light, you know, not sure about blue eyes, but certainly they, I think blue eyes, but certainly some have lighter colored hair and lighter skin, right? right? So you have these people moving up from Asia and others that from Lake Baikal join with them and seem to then move around into America. So you have an inter-America event going on, but you also have people moving to the West. And funnily enough, at around about 13,000 to 12,000 years ago, you see the sudden appearance of Gebekli Tepe, right? right. And this, this amazing complex like site with what is depicted there shows an incredibly detailed complex culture. You know, the, the, the artwork there and the symbolism and stuff, you know, it doesn't strike you as something that has emerged. It's relief carvings. You, know, you look at anywhere else at that time, there's nothing even re- resembling a relief carving, you know? No. And the fact that we see links to Northern Australia really fits in well with this because we know also that the people of Island Southeast Asia are the, are the world's first and most advanced mariners. Right. And it doesn't yeah. matter if you're in the conventional, you know, mainstream or if you're far out, you know, the, the where I might be to be, you know, because yeah. you have to accept even the mainstream have to accept. Right. Even their model, they have to say that people somehow sailed into Australia 70,000 years ago. OK, so even in the most conservative models, you've got people in Southeast Asia that are sailing 70,000 years ago. Right. Right. So that's pretty damned early. So you tell me by about 13,000 years ago, these guys don't have some pretty cool ships. Right. Right. I'm going to think that they've developed it pretty well by then, you know. Right. And yet there's this, this idea that they're stuck on is that people are walking everywhere. Like, right. Why are they walking everywhere? If they've been sailing for tens of thousands of years. Right. Right. And when Graham Hancock dived off the coast of Southeast India, onto megalithic sites that were under the sea there. I'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen the footage that he recorded when he dove himself, you know, and he went down, and there's huge megalithic structures off the coast, right? right. Which date they would have been on the surface level 12 to 13,000 years ago, right? Now, you look just to the east, you've got Sunda, right? Because what we're looking at here is outposts of a mariner culture. Sure. Right? So they've got another city, which is now under the sea, obviously, well, so they would have been sailing between India and Sunda and Northern Australia. You know, this is a complex sailing culture, taking its knowledge, its symbolism, and its know-how around the world. Also, no reason why it can't sail to the Americas. India's no got an Atlantis too, right? India's, India's got an Atlantis too, right? It's a Dwarka or the lost city of Dwarka or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I mean that that makes sense too. You know, I think everybody's been looking for Atlantis forever. Um, I do believe there's something there. Will we ever know? I don't know. I know Graham theorizes in the fingerprints of the gods, maybe Atlant, uh, sure. uh, Antarctica, that with the crustal displacement theory, when it gets pushed down to the polar uh, region. Um, well, even even Graham Hancock and um, and they talk uh, about yeah, they talk about yeah. They've talked about Sunder. A lot of them have come towards this conclusion as well, actually, that Sunder is really a good fit. That when we look at the world and we think, well, where was there an enormous landmass that would have housed, you know, all these people, this supposedly vast civilization right. that was supposedly a sailing civilization, you know, the right. earliest sailors. And when you start looking across the evidence, it's hard not to end up looking at Sunder, really. And that there's a lot of mysterious megaliths, you know, across Indonesia that nobody knows what culture put them there or how old they are because they're poorly explored. I mean, obviously, we've got recently the claims of a 20,000-year-old pyramid, you know, right. down in, in Indonesia, right? But there's other sites down there that are anomalous and the ages What's are... What's the right one on Java? There's one, I forget the name of it. Um, mm -hmm. it I think they even say it could be like 30,000 years old. Yeah. Um, with the, uh, yeah. I'm drawing a blank on the name right now. I, I'm drawing the blank on the name as well. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. You've got that. So you've got these sites. And then you've got, of course, the people that say the oral records, right, of the people in Northern Australia and their, their symbolism and their imagery right, and what they tell in their stories. And again, the people of Australia say, look, all of the people came from us. We are the first. We were always here. We've always been on this land. Right. And they, they do not buy into the thing they keep getting told. You came here 5,000 years ago. No, we didn't. We were always here. Then it was 10,000. Then it was 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80. They keep saying, we've always been here. And right. like, people have not listened to them. Right. And they say, you all came from us. We're the first people. Nobody believed them because, yeah, yeah, lots of people claim to be the first people. Yeah, but do those people have 80,000-year-old archaeological sites? No. Right. Right. Do these people, you know, does it turn out that their genetics seems to be foundational to the other people? No, right? So there, there, is a, there is a glaring thing here that if we listen to what they're telling us, that they know, they know where that we came from. They know where these cultures like Gebekli Tepe and stuff came from. Right. They would have told us, right, if we had arrived in the right way and said, brothers, we've come home, <laughs> right? Right. But we didn't. We murdered them, right? So that was the problem. That's true. There was a mass murder. There was genocide. You know, there was betrayals, et cetera, et cetera. So funnily enough, the elders often don't feel like talking about this stuff to people, right? Right. They don't really, you know, we didn't turn up in the right way. Western society did not arrive in that way with the handshake and all the rest of it, right? Right. And funnily enough, there's stories where at least one researcher who arrived, you know, in the time of colonization of Australia, he, he met with aboriginals in the remote outback and he couldn't communicate with them but he threw up some of his masonic greetings and they greeted him with masonic hand signs right really they knew the same hand signs because the ab like the, the egyptians have right. been in contact with the aboriginals and the egyptians have legacy of the aboriginal wisdom and of course it's the egyptian knowledge that's been passed on to the masons and some of these symbols go way back go back to the aboriginals and they're still being retained in egypt and other places Right. Egyptian wisdom, some of that's so where if you look at some of the stories and some of the gods, particularly the water god, this female water god and a, a giant serpent the Egyptians talk about. Right. Where does that start? Where's the oldest giant serpent? Where's the oldest female water deity who's connected to a you serpent? Know, that co Original. That's connected to a lot of stuff too, like Sumerian, it's uh, Le oh, yeah, yeah. Leviathan Absolutely. and all that stuff. There is a core first culture in Aboriginal Australia and in Sunda from which 
we all come. And that's why exactly what you're saying. Everywhere you go, you find that the water goddess, right? Who has right. a snake tail or she has a, a fish tail. And she right. is the mother goddess, right? And she's the goddess of the water. Yeah. And she's connect, always connected to the serpent. She's always a mother. But why is that? Like if this is, these are traditions that are supposed to emerge separately, but we all have that. And you could go to like Wales and stuff. You talk to the Welsh and they'll say, and nearly every lake has a legend that there's a woman in the water with a fish tail, you know, who's right. this, um, you know, <laughs> this early goddess. And you can go to Indonesia, you can go to all around the world. The Africans have her, you know, the Amazon jungle. In the rivers of the Amazon jungle, there is the woman, you know, this woman with this anaconda tail. Right. Know? She's everywhere. Well, this, like, it's good. Ganung Padang, by the way, was the site. Ah, that that's it, yeah. And here it is, right? Here's a picture of it. It's pretty crazy, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, they think there's a pyramid there, too, um, which could just be a mountain. But yeah. You know, yeah, that's the surface so, leveling, and they've sort of, they know that that bit's constructed, but that's, that's more, I guess, within more comprehensible history you know, is, it, is the x-ray was it you know gprs right. downwards it seems it gets down to like you said 20 30 000 years old supposedly yeah, just, um just like gobekli tepe because they're only what five six percent excavated or whatever so yeah. um but yeah just to uh let's let's transition here i want to i do want to sure. get to uh hybrid humans, but all that was super fascinating i, I like i said I, I urge people you know pull up your uh book cover here because I, I i really liked into africa like i said i had been looking into a lot of the stuff um i tend to look into a lot of the stuff that i consider fringe or non-conventional only because yeah. there's a little truth in everything and even if you know there's a couple parts that aren't perfect or right or whatever the general idea of it rings true i believe and i think that um like i said i urge everybody to uh, get it on kindle or buy the hardcover and uh you know, it's a for great sure. book for sure. Um, so, but let's get into hybrid humans, which is your uh, wife, Daniela, and you did the research uh, and helped her with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a completely kind of, you know, is where this was still somewhat steeped into uh, mainstream. The alien thing has become huge with ancient aliens and just people constantly talking about it, looking for answers. And I think that's what... Uh, what we do as humans, and I think that that's why we subconsciously know that there's something else, or some people do, maybe not the reductionist scientists, but oh. um, we're always looking for this other thing, or we always think that there's something else, or we're always searching for this thing. And, you know, I hear the reductionists say, oh, that's just our longing to, you know, come up with some mm -hmm. reasonable explanation for things. But I don't think that that's the case because. I myself, I'm a big meditator, and I, you know, when I was younger, I did a lot of psychedelic, you, you know, experiment, uh, experimentation, and different things. Um, so, I mean, I've seen some pretty weird shit myself, and experienced some weird stuff happening. And like I talked about earlier, I've recently had a bunch of synchronicities um, occur that are can't be a coincidence. So, I no longer believe in coincidence. But, uh, um, but yeah, this book, Hybrid Humans, uh, talks about your wife's. Um, she had her own experience with her father at an airport. Um, you know, you know, if you want to describe it, you can. But uh, sure. and it also talks about, you know, it actually kind of correlates back to you know the eight eight hundred thousand year old thing with what we were talking about with the Homo sapien Denisovans and, um, uh, you know, Neanderthals yeah, they, they and the way they emerge. The two books do tie in. I mean, obviously, I've done it in a way where they're quite, you know, it's quite distinct, you know, that 
they're not meant to be, you know, follow on in a way. But right. yeah, obviously, I feel if someone reads Into Africa first, they would definitely get a benefit from doing that before reading Hybrid Humans. You know what I mean? They, it would give them some foundations that perhaps are not supplied in, in you know, the um, Hybrid Humans book. If they wanted to go a bit deeper into human evolution and understanding, you know, what's happened. Um, also, I will assure people that in the books, you know, I jump around a lot less than I do talking to people. You know, I obviously I have a lot of interest. So like yourself, so, you know, I jump around. In the books is my opportunity, right? You know, you can sit down and I can put things in a linear focus, moving, you know, in a sequential way, which I don't do when I'm talking to people. I tend to jump around. So I love I, I jumping around. I, I think that's good. Though, like, what, I think it's good what you're saying, though. I do think it's good <laughs> to get some sort of chronological order to your thoughts uh, mm-hmm. on things. That's definitely huge. But I, I think with, when you're doing long conversation or long form format stuff with whether it be a podcast or something mm-hmm. along those lines, I think having those conversations, that's where new ideas and thoughts and correlations come to, I, you know, I think yeah. as much as, um, you know, you learn from you doing your research. I bet you, if you sat down with the Graham Hancock or whatever, there's a lot more that can be learned from just having that conversation. So that's why I like jumping around is because, you know, like our brains, we don't always go in order. So, no, that's right. So, so people want the, the, the linear experience. Yeah. The books give that in a way that they won't necessarily get from those conversations, but yeah, no, it, it does sort of follow on a bit. So yeah, certainly the period of particular interest, you know, as given away by the book's title, you know, is that period around 800,000 years ago in which, you know, early humans, early hominins go into a sudden rapid, you know, brain size expansion and strange changes to the genetics, you know, that we have a number of genes which basically, um, some which just appear out of nowhere, some which seem to be, you know, sliced and cut and copied, um, and others that just, you know, have changed profoundly at around that time, which differentiate humans from other primates. You know, there's dozens of genes which differentiate us from primates, but almost all of them are connected to the brain, which is really, like, anomalous in itself, because... You know, you don't expect that. Evolution is supposed to be slowly modifying, you know, different parts of the form, you know, but to have a sudden splurge of changes in genes that just upgrade the brain in itself is anomalous, right? Right. But that brain size expansion is considered anomalous. You know, they've never really understood it. Even before genetics was a thing, they used to look at the skulls of these early humans and say, hey, what the hell happened, you know, 800,000 years ago? Why does the, the brain size start going up and up and up so rapidly up until 200,000 years ago, right? When it seems to sort of slow down again because we're kind of, you know, we're here sort of thing, you know, we're, right. you know the early modern humans or at least the homo sapiens have arrived and it kind of slows down, right? Um, so there is something very strange, even in the most conventional circles of archaeology there that has not been understood, and that's where we kind of delve into. And obviously there's um, the jump-off point, though, is that, yeah, Daniela and I have our own strange experiences. I mean, Daniela obviously describes, you know, one of hers, this, you know, direct interaction with a UFO, yeah. uh, which was over Sydney Airport, going back, you know, I think about to around 2000 or something like that. Seeing one of these, I guess we call now a, a classical, you know, free lights in a triangular formation, hovering right. over an airport and again airport sightings have become, it's become known isn't it that they're quite common actually i think that they've even had one here in chicago at this at o'hare um i think around that same time a little bit after the millennium somewhere around there yeah and like you know so so in a way although she wouldn't have known it then you know that's now probably is it one of the the 
the more common kinds of interactions is these people near to airports, you know, picked up on radar and all this, you know. But the thing is that the object sort of followed them. That was the thing that was particularly strange is that, you know, obviously they they left the scene. There was many people watching this, you know, it was cars pulled over, people looking, you know, what the hell is that above the airport? Um, but then after they left, they found, you know, one of these triangles was, was literally following above the car, you know, a, a fair height above. Right. They seemed to be tracking the movements of their car. Right, and the strange thing about that was her, her dad kind of admitted to her that he had seen you know, weird, you know, objects in the sky in Ecuador where he grew up, right. um, including some some these kind of balls of light type ones in the jungle, um, and also he's not. I don't think he's a jungle tribesman. He was he was in the army in the jungle, and that you know at times him and his friends, you know, in the military saw these balls of light following them through the jungle. And also right. in the town he grew up in, he had a sighting with a craft hovering above the main cathedral in the town centre with people all looking up. So, so you know, he'd had a couple of experiences. He obviously knew that there's some weird things out there. And so he said, like, let's just go, you know, let's just try. He wasn't right. comfortable with it. Um, and then they found it was following them. And there was also interaction with the car radio, you know, static. And it seemed like there was an interaction with the engine. They were quite worried it would stall um, until they eventually sort of pulled in at a McDonald's and it kind of left, you know, so... It did seem that there was some kind of targeting of Daniela and, and her dad, you know, which is kind of strange. I know a lot of these cases where people have phenomena, you know, is followed through the family line and also targets certain individuals. Um, Daniela is a, a very gifted psychic medium. She's a professional psychic reader and medium. Um, you know, she, people look on where she works. She works at a place called uh, Absolute Soul Secrets and see the reviews and things, you know, that she's, you know, six star reviewed, uh, six out of six stars reviewed psychic on there because she comes up with, you know, names of people's family, you know, the past and all that sort of stuff. She's very, very gifted. So for whatever reason, these entities, these forces, you know, seem to target people like that. Um, I guess she may have inherited stuff from her father's family line, you know. So Wasn't it like an initiate type thing, don't you think? Like, um, I, I don't know if you know who Rudolf Steiner is, but uh, yeah. his work uh, is based on what's called the initiates, where it's almost like it doesn't have to be a bloodline thing, but like I was talking about synchronicities and different things happening. If you're open to the idea, it seems to manifest mm-hmm. itself a little bit clearer to those people as yeah. opposed to something that's like, oh, that's just a coincidence. Or, and then they move on with their day, not sure. thinking, oh, I was just thinking this weird thought, it's 11-11, and then I'm looking at this thing, and it's on the 11, you know, like all those kinds of things. Um, yeah. But, uh you know, that's what I found interesting about the book, too, is a combination of, yes, kind of your work with the, you know, ancestral lineage thing, and then also the tie-in with the, um, you know, her being a psychic medium, and then all sorts of dimensional-type theorizing and that kind of yeah. stuff, too. She's quite heavily involved in shamanism. You know, she learned... Um, we lived in Ecuador for five years. I mean, she's lived in Ecuador at other times before I... You know, met her, but we lived in Ecuador for five years together, and she practiced with a number of um, shamanic practitioners and ancestral healers and stuff there. So, so she's quite involved in that and has a lot of her own experiences with journeying and uh, has had what you know is touched on in the book. She's had her own what we don't know what to call them in a way, but kind of abductions, um, abductions of consciousness. You know, we, it's not claimed at any point that her physical self was taken because. Right. You know, they occurred whilst I was, you know, present. She would be unconscious or in an altered state of consciousness, and her consciousness would be somewhere else. You know, in the cases of most of the events she had, her consciousness would be in the seventh century in the Mayan city of Palenque, yeah. inhabiting a That's person crazy. there, like one of the one of the ruling house. 
um, basically a relative of Lord Picao, right? So totally bizarre experiences. Obviously, shamanic workers often do have extremely strange experiences. You know, you can if you talk to any shamans around the world, they'll have some, you know, probably some equally strange tales to tell. Um, but obviously that's kind of part of this story because it turned out that the beings there that were interacting with the Maya were what we think of as these Pleiadians, which are human-like um, beings, which seem to be both extraterrestrial, interdimensional, and time travelers, you know, all rolled up into one because some of the phenomena that surrounds them really crosses those boundaries. And, and they've quite clearly said at times, you know, that, you know, they travel through time. And they, it's quite obvious that they're interdimensional because they appear out of nowhere and things like that, you know, manifest in the room for and then disappear. Or, and sh- I, mean, I know that there's shamans who see the same types of beings in ayahuasca journeys. Right? Right. As, as do shamans see grey aliens during ayahuasca journeys. So, right. I mean, these beings, we, it's really, again, what we were t- touching on the beginning is that there's this strange overlap. You know, is it physical? Is it just in your mind? Is It It really is crossing all these boundaries. The greys, you know, seem to be also equally physical and non-physical. So, I mean, I think there's this, there's no clear answer. There's no good being a materialist in this sphere because if you say... I think it's just nuts and bolts, metal <laughs> spacecraft flying from Zargon 7, you know, and that's what it is. And we're going to find, you know... Meet David metal- Wilcock type stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a problematic view. If people take that stance, they will never, ever get to the root of what the heck is going on. I can, I can right. promise them that. Because yeah. these same beings are appearing to people, you know, in vision quests and stuff, you know? So we can't say that if they're seeing a Graylian in a spaceship on ayahuasca... Right. Are we going to say that that's a physical metal ship? You know, obviously not. So what do you have to say about the... Uh, so you, you're familiar with ayahuasca. Have you ever done just DMT and smoked it? Because I, I hear it's like yeah. one's kind of like a, a boat ride down a tunnel and the other one's like a fucking rocket ship through a tunnel. Um, I was just curious yeah. what you have thought about that, maybe. Yeah, I, I smoked DMT a few times, but only once in a really strong go. I feel that's probably the first time because I was a bit intimidated, to be honest. The other times I did it a little bit less of it, so I, yeah. I didn't really go to quite breakthrough. Uh, but the first time was more a breakthrough, but I was intimidated because so I felt myself being pulled into sort of, sort of tunnel, and I, I, I resisted that because I was intimidated by the force that it unleashed. Um, so I, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit wary of that. Um, yeah, it's perhaps a bit too powerful for my liking. Um, that's not to underestimate ayahuasca or... Right, like, no, no, not, not at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely it blows the hinges off the doors and throws your ass straight through. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, if that's what you know, someone's looking for, yeah, you know, it does what it says on the tin, you know, you'll go flying off and see the machine elves or whatever. But ayahuasca, yeah, is a, is a little bit gentler. Um, and obviously, you have a longer journey, so you can make more sense of what's happening. Um, as with San Pedro, which I've worked with quite extensively as well. Um, and San Pedro doesn't get as perhaps as well known, but I would say it was as equally powerful, and you can have as equally vivid journeys and some really, really profoundly weird journeys with San Pedro where maybe three or four of you are experiencing the same stuff, which doesn't seem to happen with ayahuasca, that you know, you're seeing the same stuff in your house or hearing the same noises and things you know right. so that seems to bring you into a collective other state which is really bizarre um, i didn't know about san pedro till i saw i don't know if you're familiar with hamilton's pharmacopoeia on vice it's a show the frog stuff or oh, no that's five no, that's dmt yeah they uh they excrete the glands with those and then they dry it out yeah, and smoke it. Yeah. yeah the san pedro is a bit like the um the cacti the, 
the characters the Native Americans use. I've almost called the oh uh, peyote. Yeah, yeah, it's more like the oh, peyote. Okay. It's same, yeah, mescaline and similar yeah. compound. Now, when I was yeah. younger, I did try mescaline once, um, and it was pretty pretty intense. Um, that was yeah. one of the, the the more exotic ones. You know, growing up, we were into like jam bands, mm-hmm. fish, Grateful Dead, and that kind of stuff. So we were kind of around that kind of psychedelic culture. Um, mm-hmm. But what I noticed about that was it was kind of a completely different thing than, let's say, psilocybin or um, anything yeah. LSD or anything conventional like that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, San Pedro was new to me until I saw this episode on Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia where he mm-hmm. went down and met with the the shamans and he became uh, kind of an honorary shaman and he had to, like, work a little bit before. They made him do all sorts of, like, cleaning stuff and, yeah. you know doing stuff to get them kind of prepared, like mentally prepared. So I think that's the interesting thing about shamanism is you don't just show up and take a drug and then whatever you, there's a preparation. They get you in the right mindset. Um, you might have to do a little physical labor here and there to kind of, uh, you know, there's often often a purge element, you know, whether that's being, whether that's being physically sick, you know, obviously, or whether, you know, some people, you know, have to go and have, you know, to toilet and have diarrhea. And, and then other people, it may be just as simple as, as coughing or yawning or, or something. But usually in some way, you know, there's some kind of cleansing purge associated with like the San Pedro and Ayahuasca and some of the other plants. But yeah, certainly the shamans usually will take an active role in that in cleansing you or encouraging you to purge. You know, they may well um, rub certain plants over you or an egg over you because that's absorbs some of the negative energy out of your field. Um, tobacco there's also blowing smoke on you. And other yeah, things. some sort of tobacco. I don't know what it was, if it was conventional or what, but it seemed like there was some sort of tobacco stuff going on. Might have been a w- yeah. little wacky. <laughs> wacky tobacco. It could be. I mean, but yeah, certainly there's that cleansing element. I mean, so that's part of those journeys. But... I'm trying to figure out how I got, how I got how I get back to high no, it's, 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 it's all good. It, basically, <laughs> what we were talking about though is like touching touching the the metaphysical because I think we can all look out our bedroom windows at night. We can look into a um, telescope. We can do all that kind of stuff. But I think the connection mm-hmm. to all this stuff is the psychedelics. I do believe mm-hmm. whether it's dreams, like we were talking about, your wife being um, her consciousness being possessed or taken. Um, yeah, and and I, I the way in the book it's described is different than let's say a normal dream where it might just be a bad dream where somebody's yeah. taken like she's doing physical. You could there's physical manifestations of this, and yeah. I would assume you viewing this were not maybe concerned, but it was like what the hell is going on here? Uh, going I, I, I've been very concerned at times. You're very concerned. I mean, um, also I mean you know the first time it happened, I mean you know she was just mumbling away unconsciously she got quite ill went to bed and was just mumbling away you know after about an hour being a swipe or was sort of asleep you know unconscious you know when you're ill feverish have just gone totally out you know but then she started sort of talking you know quietly and i was like what you know what is that about and i knew that because obviously we both have a history with psychic phenomena so obviously i'm a bit more open-minded and probably a bit more I guess, aware of things that other people might be. So I did think, well, okay, what is this? You know, is this a phenomenon? You know, what's going on here? So I listened to what she was saying. And, you know, some of the stuff that she was mumbling in this state made sense. You know, I heard things about 
you know, um, days of darkness and the sun being reborn and things that she was mumbling about. And it was obviously a conversation with another party where obviously I could only hear one side of the conversation. But I was familiar with some of these things from things like Hopi prophecy and Mayan, you know, writings. So thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, what's going on here? Because this stuff is recognizable as prophecy type stuff. So when she came back around, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I guess maybe people think it's a bit sort of, sneaky but I, I pretend like i hadn't heard but i was like you know did you have a weird you know dream last night or anything like that you know i said the research a bit of me kind of kicked in you know it's a bit skeptical you know just to check you know um was it just a normal dream or what and she said well actually you know i had this horrific thing of being pulled through a wall found myself in this strange sort of domed space with all these strange people some of them dressed in mayan clothes some in like native american clothes some of them quite clearly just aliens but even the other ones too tall to be normal humans you know like giant people in in clothes from ancient cultures but still like seven foot tall um and other beings that she said yeah they were just clearly alien and that they were talking to her about these things either that had happened are happening or would happen you know on earth um, and that there were other groups of beings there that took no notice of her at all and that were just having their own conversations. It was some sort of meeting, you know, going on. And at some point, they started to include her into the conversation, right? So what I heard, obviously, was her side of this conversation. Now, that was the first time. And one of the interesting things about that is that I now know that in DMT experiences, a lot of times people talk about the dome, right? Right, right. Now, yeah. she hadn't taken anything. You know, she wasn't on DMT or San Pedro or anything. In fact, she'd never tried any of those to be clear. LSD or anything like that in case someone wonders, you know, was this a drug experience? No, she'd never tried any of those things at that time, right? It's when we just arrived in Ecuador together and she hadn't tried anything like that. Um, so it was totally spontaneous. Um, and then after that, these events started to happen fairly regularly, but they were, it was never that one again. It was always after that finding herself in this ancient Mayan city, or at least a copy of the Mayan city of Palenque. But we don't know if it's the real one, time travel, or if it's some sort of virtual world, you know, or an alien reconstruction. How do you know? All you know is that you're there, and it seems bloody real, you know? Um, And so that's what the experience would be after that, and she had that for about over a year. And I used to sometimes record her talking in what, as far as I'm aware, is ancient Mayan. Right. So people can say like, oh, you know, maybe she's just dreaming. But do you ever dream in ancient Mayan? You know, I've never had a dream where I'm chatting away in ancient Egyptian or nothing. You know what I mean? So um, the fact that I could like record her having these conversations with another party in an ancient language uh, that she has no knowledge of. Right. uh, It's pretty extraordinary. So I don't care what anyone said because that's that's. And on top of that, there was times where she had things happen that happened there that impacted her here. Like she said, it was time that she was grabbed by these beings that were there and they gave her this liquid, some kind of thing, forced her to drink it. And then, you know, she was aware it was something toxic and they made her feel ill. But then like she actually got really ill in the bedroom and was right. vomiting off the side of the bed, right? And so I mean, she hasn't drunk, you know, she hasn't had anything. She went to bed totally normal. Hmm. And then she comes back around and she's really ill, vomiting, saying that she feels like she's dying and that they've poisoned her. And I'm like, what do you do in that situation? I mean, imagine, what do you do in that situation? Like you, who do you call to say that your partner has been poisoned in the another dimension by the ancient Mayans? You call and the them aliens, Ghostbusters, I mean. man. That's what you do. Yeah, I mean, totally. So, yeah, I, there were times where I was very concerned by the No, but that. that's weird because that's not really even psychosomatic stuff, too. Because, like what you're saying, you're in one realm experiencing mm-hmm. one thing, 
you know, and then you jump to this, you know, like you're, you're, you've got, you're steeped in reality. She's off Mm -hmm. in another world. She's experiencing something in another world that's carrying over into our world. Um, so that's the interesting aspect about, like I said too, the way it's written, people are thinking, Oh, it's just a dream. It's not, you guys did a good job of explaining it in a way that I'm glad. Yeah. Because it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like normal dreams. She worked with right. a black eye on one occasion and things like that. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, that was the crazy thing that, that part that she had physical, yeah, how does that look? You know, I'm the only other person yeah. in the room. So, I mean, you know, how does it look to someone else that, you know, that I punched during the night, you know, <laughs> I'm poisoning her in the night or, yeah. you know, what the hell's going on? So, I mean, yeah, I can't say that I was always like exactly like, Happy with, it. and also I didn't know whether she would survive this because it's uncharted territory. I mean, I've had a lot of weird experiences. I know a lot of people in the psychic and research community. I don't know of anyone else who's had those experiences, so I don't know what the final climax of that. I still, to this day, don't really know. But you know, obviously, like she is being concerned about would she come back? You know, and what happens if you don't come back? Is it like the Matrix? You know, what I mean, if you die in the right. Matrix, you die in real life. I mean, you've got those kind of weird problems, isn't it? You know, because if it's that real that you can come back with a black eye and you're talking in Mayan and you're being sick, what happens if they kill you there? Right? What right. happens then? So I mean, there's this. There is a problem with it that you know it's very. Uh, uncomfortable and on one occasion for example the other person who she displaces right where does that person go i don't know where they normally go but on one occasion they came back through into her body right and me and my friend basically with an impromptu exorcism and trying to sort of say to her like you've got to go back you know it's time for you to go back it's time for you to go back and like reading prayers to her and stuff and saying you've got to go back because you know you you can't live in this time because like can you imagine suddenly your partner is displaced by a seventh century mayan princess (laughs) right and you've got to explain that to the kids right why's mummy being so weird like and that's like again uncharted territory like i don't know what the hell you do with that? Because obviously the only thing that can come of that is being sectioned into a mental hospital, isn't it? Because you, what do you do? And if I can't, if I can't undo it as the other person here in normal experience and in reality, and with an understanding of weirdness, um, there's nobody else that's going to be able to help her. You know what I mean? A doctor is not going to have a cure for that shit. You know what I mean? They're going to just go, you, she's gone nuts. Put yeah. her in a mental home. You know, she thinks she's a mind princess. Give you her know? Zoloft, uh, Xanax, and yeah, Lexapro. Yeah, the rest of your life. <laughs> So, I mean, that has been a concern. And, I, you know, there's been a couple of times where I think, yeah, that the other consciousness sometimes is in that body but doesn't move. But on one occasion, it seems to be starting to take over the body. And I was very, very concerned with that. Um, and so, I mean, we don't go too much in the book, but we did in our, we did write a book before, right, 2012 Rising the Last Old Kin, which is now discontinued because it has things in it that I'm not wholly comfortable with. And also it's, it was related to 2012. 2012's sure. gone. It's a bit pointless having the book. Um, oh, and it's stuff they, that you learn to, or you've researched, your research since then has kind of debunked your own Yeah, yeah, there's stuff in there which I would, just, I, would, I would rewrite that book with just her experiences and some of the other stuff, but take out a lot of the other stuff. Because, but in there, we went into more detail about the experiences. I mean, it's, it's not in the Hybrid Humans book, because again, it deserves, you know, if we were going to tell that tale, you know what I mean, it deserves a book in its own right. So we've just mentioned it briefly in Hybrid Humans, you know. Sure. Um, just to sort of point out that there is a link there between like Danny's experiences, these Pleiadians, and the same beings that appear in our research, these Pleiadians, again, you know, that there's a continuity, that it does seem that the contacting forces in her abduction type experiences seem to be the same ETI, you know, uh, off world intelligence, interdimensional intelligence, 
as that we find in our study for hybrid humans. And that's why we bring it in, because, you know, it does seem to be the same collective, you know, that is interacting with humanity in both cases. And now we're not saying that they're the only ones, because they're not. You know, there's greys and there's you know, reptilians. There's there's some really weird things out there. And so I do you guys believe in that that aspect of it, though? Because I know, like, people get crazy. I, I'm on all the mm-hmm. blogs and stuff promoting our stuff, and I go on all the groups and check out mm-hmm. all the stuff. And there's legit crazy fucking people out there. There's 47 different types, and there may well be. There could be infinite amount of alien. I don't know. Um, like I said, I'm more in the school. It's all the same it's all the same thing. Maybe the greys are just the evil ones of the Pleiadians or vice versa, you know, whatever. I don't know. But I, what school or what have you learned from your research in terms of what you think is out there besides, or do you just stick to the Pleiadians because that's what you've, she's learned through her experiences and stuff like that? That's been the major focus. I mean, certainly that's where the information, you know, has built up strongest for us. I mean, she saw other beings there. I mean, she was in this place in Palenque under the city. There was not only these hybrid plans, there was also tall greys, short greys, and what looked like a kind of lizard-skinned humans. So not quite what people describe as reptilians, but what looked like genetically modified humans who had a kind of scaly type of skin. So so you see multiple kinds of entities within that experience, right? So whatever that experience is, you know, whether you say it's okay, um, like I said, a construct or a what, I don't know. We do have a reptilian brain. I mean, we've got the pineal gland, which regulates our circadian rhythm. Whatever it is, you know, again, I don't want to give anyone an absolute conclusion on that because it'd be wrong for me to do so because I don't know, you know, I I know the daughter she. All she can tell you is it was as real as her day reality and that she saw those things and had those experiences. But in terms of the the book, you know, where it dovetails away from that, of course, is that we thought, well, look, we've said to people before, you know, this has happened and that has happened. And, you know, without evidence, you know, you can't reasonably expect people to believe it. And I'm okay with that. I, I understand unless someone has had a personal experience with something like that or one right. of these entities, there's no real reason why they should believe you. And they should be critical and skeptical of it. That doesn't mean they have to be rude and dismissive, but they should be critical and think, well, you feel you seem to believe it happened to you. I believe that you believe it happened or that something happened to you, Right. But I don't necessarily have to believe that, well, I now believe in, you know, Pleiadians and Greys. And I haven't had that experience and you haven't given me any evidence. You haven't got a photo. You haven't given me a piece of spaceship. You know, whatever it is, you know, right. I accept that. I'm not going to say to you, you must believe me, you know, don't do you know. So what we thought is, is there, you know, a part of our research where we can offer some of that physical evidence? And where we found the strongest case was within someone else's accounts. And this is a lady called Valerie Barrow. And she had a book out in 2002, which is called Alcharinga, when the first ancestors were created, right? Which is an account, which is a blend, really, because she encountered an artifact, an Aboriginal artifact known as an Alcharinga stone, which you touched on earlier. Yeah. Now, the Aboriginal people who have Alcharinga stones in the, I think it's the central and northern desert areas, they say that these go back to the dream time, to the original creation time, Alcharinga time, right? And that they they house some element of the consciousness of Alcharinga beings, the first creators of this planet and of humanity. That's what they say they are, right? It's almost like, you know, um, alien artifacts housing some kind of alien consciousness. That's right. kind of what it sounds like from the way they tell it, okay? So this is not something that we or Valerie or, you know, has, has come up with. This is 
their law on it, right? She was given one of these to look after for a period because the person who had it was ill, was trying to return it to the, the right Aboriginal people. And she said, well, look, can you look after it? Because your house is called Alcharinga, and I feel that you're meant to look after this stone. You know, I've also heard you're, you know, you're, she's a psych, she was a psychic medium. So obviously she yeah. was open-minded about strange things. So a person decided she was the right person to hold on to this strange artifact until such time as it would be collected. Uh, Valerie agreed to do this. It was kept wrapped up in leaves and in a box in, a ha- in her house. She didn't ever take it out and look at it directly. It remained put away respectfully because she knew that they're not artifacts you're supposed to take out and start playing around with and looking at. It'd be dis- you know, disrespectful to the Aboriginal culture, right? So she didn't do it. But what she found instead is that she started hearing this voice, discarnate voice telling her, I am, I am Alcharinga. You know, I'm a voice of, you know, when the Alcharinga beings from this first time, and I want to tell you about a lost period in human history, uh, when the first, you know, humans were created, and that when we came from space, we, the Pleiadians, you know, came from space and helped create the first humans. This being, this voice, basically just filled her in with the story, but it also said, look, you're going to get validations. You're going to meet a number of people who are also going to tell you this story from their own past life type memory experiences. So although the discarnate voice was able to tell her the story, it also gave her, it wanted to give her, it seems, separate validation that she wasn't just hearing this voice in her head and going nuts or whatever, you know. And so in some bizarrely complex arrangement by the universe or by these intelligences, they also made it so she started to encounter people who would either spontaneously or during regressions or by simply looking at pictures of some symbols would start to tell her that they remembered a life either as one of the beings that arrived here at this time, you know, back in the Alcharinga time, this first time, or that they were one of the first humans or that they were one of these extraterrestrials that were on the negative side of this story, which there is a negative side of the story. Um, And so she started getting this entire narrative given to her both by the voice and by these people, right? She also was taken by an Aboriginal, a quite famous Aboriginal healer and elder. She was taken by him to a site called, um, what is known as the Gosford Glyphs, that you might be familiar with. Yeah, I've, I haven't looked into it too much. I know it's, uh, what I know about it is that it was an Egyptian um, mm-hmm. prince that left. I don't know if it was like the son of Khufu or something like that. And yeah. he made it to Australia, was bitten by a poisonous snake, died there and they carved glyphs into the wall there now there's been discussion is it real is it not real if you go on a lot of the stuff people call it fake i don't know enough about it to to say either way but i don't have a problem with it being fake i mean what is what is told in the story at least is that that site is particularly important right it is an aboriginal sacred site there irrespective of the glyphs and whether people accept them as old or not is on a rock outcrop, which is an Aboriginal site. So there's both a men's and women's initiationary sites on that rock, okay? Right. So it's a special place, right? There are glyphs there. Some of them may be very modern. Some of them may be very old. Some may be Egyptian. Some may go back to before that. Some may have been done last week, for all I know, right? I mean, we're talking about somebody, but we're talking about somebody that's having these experiences. Who's not to say that somebody else didn't have one of these experiences and record like they regress back into the prince that got bit by the snake and then wrote it all down or something like that. Well, it's, a, it's a funny thing that the story on the stone seems to be the story of, you know, two different ships 
crashing yeah. and people being marooned, you know, because on the one level, it seems that there is a story, like you say, an Egyptian prince who's marooned there in Australia and his ship is destroyed and he's trapped. And on another level, people are saying that they see a story there of an extraterrestrial vessel. And on, another, on one of the other walls, there's three walls of glyphs, that one of the walls seems to tell this tale of this crystalline mothership coming, being destroyed, you know, the people being marooned there, almost like a time loop, tales from the time loop, you know, that, again, you know, similar events playing out with some, you know, important people being trapped because their ship is destroyed. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I don't know right. whether whether that's the case, and I don't read, you know, I don't read those hieroglyphs. All I can tell you is that the site is very important, and in these transmissions, the, the intelligence said, that is the place where these craft, you know, came down. And when she went to the site, her and the, the other people with her, the Aboriginal guy and another lady that were with her, they had a time slip experience. Now, time slips obviously are known in paranormal investigation. Right. People have gone to places, they suddenly see, you know, um, I know, the, the French queen, you know, in 1500s or so, you know, walking around in her gardens. Right. And they walk through a mist and they're back to, you know, the modern day. Like that stuff happens to people. We don't know how it happens. We don't know why it happens. Does it happen in their brain? Does it happen in the physical? I don't know. But people report time slips, okay? Uh, and this is what they experienced. That one minute they were just there on the rocky outcrop and it was the present moment. And then the three of them found themselves no longer human in strange bodies, looking at a scene, seeing a, a UFO craft, a saucer craft crashed into the water, a broken, what's been called a broken bay, looking down from this rocky outcrop. There's another ship hovering above, is pulling people out of the water. Right. There's beings on the beach. There's beings being pushed in by dolphins. Um, there's obviously dead bodies. You know, it's, it's a, a sort of chaotic scene of these extraterrestrials. They begin to become aware that they are part of this story. Um, they know that one of them realizes that he is the pilot of the ship that's in the water. And he feels himself in the ship slowly drowning. Right. Another one is his wife of that time, who is safely on shore. Uh, and another one, you know, Valerie herself finds out gradually i don't know if she finds that in that moment but she finds that basically she is considered the communicator head communications officer and was the wife of the commanding officer of the ship and they start to realize who they were in this strange past life remember they've been sort of pushed to go to this place by a series of coincidences and at this place it begins to unlock following that she meets i think it's about 30 people she's talking about 30 different people over the next few months all of whom give her a small piece of this story of how a ship came from the pleiades uh, arrived here with the mission of colonizing the planet, uh, using their technologies to modify themselves so they could live here, because it's a ho hostile planet for these beings, a collective of different entities, not one race, right? Multiple races in some kind of galactic alliance. Volunteers that have gone on this ship, they're going to use their genetically, you know, their genetic engineering technologies to modify themselves to live there, right? Which is a comprehensible thing. If we're talking about advanced ET, like you want to colonize a planet. If you can't terraform it straight away, well, just use your advanced modification abilities. Change yourself, because we can see where we're going with these technologies. Right. I don't think the first people that leave our solar system will be like you and I. We're going to use genetic engineering to change ourselves. You know, those space people will probably have cybernetics and genetic engineering. So th these are beings with the ability to adapt themselves to the climates of planets that they go to, right? That kind of technology, which is a comprehensive advanced technology. They also, the ship itself is a living entity, right? A crystalline mainframe of silicon inhabited by an advanced AI, right? Now, if you go and look into the literature, right, of the, what's considered to be the, the most far-thinking 
you know, scientists and philosophers looking at the ET question. Right. You look at what they say they think extraterrestrials would be like when they present themselves. One of them says it's crystalline, probably silicon-type, you know, networks inhabited by advanced AI, post-biological entities, right? They think that's the most likely type of alien that humans will encounter, right? So at first you think, you know, are we talking about something new age here? You know, crystal, ooh, woo, crystals. Well, no, you know, isn't it that they would send, if you were, if let's say we got to the point where we can send stuff across the universe at a timely fashion, <laughs> are you going to send people out there? I mean, that's lambs to the slaughter. No, you would build some sort of AI... <laughs> That would it's not the first thing you send, is it? You don't send yourself first. Right. You're going to be sending these probes, these living AI, these robot ships, you know, and even then, so in the, the description, they also are using a warp technology. You know, the people are in a, some kind of suspended sleep. The AI ship is able to function itself and is traveling through some sort of warped space while the people are all frozen in suspended animation. The ship can do its own thing, right? Again, comprehensible technologies, the level you'd want to have before you travel the galaxy, right? right? Not just getting in some rock here and hoping for the best, right? So they arrive here through a wormhole, it sounds like to me anyway. It's either a wormhole or some kind of um, warp drive, you know, some kind of time-space bubble. Right. So they, they describe entering into a gateway. That's why I assume it's a wormhole, because of this entering a gateway is described. Right. Um, the ship basically does not originate, and this is how I want to clarify as well. People talk about Pleiadians, and this is something I clarify in the book. I don't believe, and it is not claimed by us or the information, that these beings live on a world in the Pleiades. That's the first thing I say. I don't believe there's anyone living in the Pleiades at all. So whenever someone says, you know, I'm from... Alcyon, and you, you talk to New Ages, they'll say, you know, we're from Alcyon, and the Pleiadians were all, I'm from which which star in the Pleiades are you from? And they'll start telling you they're from Maya or Alcyon. Right. The Pleiades is a very young, hot star cloud, right? They're, right. they're like 100 million-year-old stars, right? They're too young to even have planets, most of them, right? So it's not believable that a advanced, you know, multi-million-year, say, civilization has formed in the Pleiades right. and given rise to these space travelers. No. And that is not claimed. What they have is an anomaly there in the Pleiades, which they use to travel through to get here. Okay. It seems there is some kind of network of wormholes, and the entrance to our, our part of space takes them through the Pleiades, right? So they come from the Pleiades. However, they are not Pleiadian in that sense, right? It is something that the New Age people don't like. And I've tried to get books, New Age sites and stuff, and to the Facebook, because they don't like it, because it doesn't fit with their paradigm. Because they, they say they're from Alcyon and all this stuff. Um, and then these beings arrive. There is a problem. They end up in an altercation with another group that's here who's supposed to be leaving the planet to them. There's a negotiation. They're supposed to hand it over. The other group says, says look, actually, no, fuck it. We're not mm -hmm. going to. They ambush the ship. They blow it out of the sky. They use what's right. called um, it's like a sonic a sonic entrainment, like a frequency resonance. So the ship right. is basically superheated and shattered. You know, it's, if you use, it's like with the, when you see a wine glass explode when someone's voice entrains it. They use a right. field. So the ship is like superheated and shattered. So it kind of melts and explodes in space. And it's described in the book. They say, you know, the pieces rain down on the earth. It melts and rains down. And this is stuff that's described in these memories, right? Um, it's quite specific. So you've got a crystalline vessel, which is um, super, you know, superheated, blown up, melts, rains down. So one of the things I wanted to look for was any evidence of that, you know, because, sure. okay, you know, past life memories, people claim a lot of stuff, but, like, usually it's very hard to track it down. Like, 
there's some cases which they have, like Professor Ian Stevenson's work at the University of Virginia, the Perceptual Studies Unit. You know, they've managed to come to a lot of cases in India and places where, yeah, kids with past life memories, you know, where they've traced a family. But, like, like we're going back hundreds of thousands of years here. So right. you know, you've got a particular problem because you can't just go, well, okay, let's go and see if, you know, a person lived in that village 100 years ago and find out from locals or from records because there isn't anything. So I, I've had to pick out evidence from this story which might conceivably have survived for hundreds of thousands of years, right? So I thought, well, hang on a minute. So if you've got a, a silicon-based ship, silicon is pretty durable stuff, right? So yep. we know that it can, it can weather those hundreds of thousands of years, right? That even a glass bottle, if you leave it, you know, bury it and all the rest of it, and it's not under any superheating or pressure, it will last a very long time. You know, right. that glass bottle can be there a very long time, even just our glass that we make, right? So I'm thinking, so, hmm, maybe some remnants of this can be found, you know? So I start looking for that. That's one of the major ones I think, you know, can I look for. Where, where to look? Well, if you've got supposedly ships coming down in Gosford, right, and they're landing at that site, I'm thinking if your, if your mother ship is blown up, you're going straight down. Like, for example, one of these ships has crashed. I don't think it's going to have traveled far then, isn't it? This sounds like, you know, you've gone out in an emergency. Your mothership's blown up. You right. race into the ground. So the ship must be above Australia or thereabouts, right? So is there any anomalous crystalline material that can be found in Australia, silica-based, which would match this? And I'm thinking there's no fucking way I'm going to find that, right? So I start looking and find that there is a 100-year-old scientific mystery of this material in southern Australia called Darwin's glass, right? Because Darwin was given a piece when he visited Australia, which ties right. into into the Darwinian story. Sure. Um, but he, so he actually had a piece of this stuff. Um, and it turns out, yeah, that there's this mystery because all these scientists, NASA scientists, geologists, you know, loads of scientists have examined it. And they don't understand it because particularly not because of the, the way it's made up. It is an unusual compound in that it is not the same as the makeup of, say, a normal meteorite or a normal comet. Um, but the, the chemicals within it are known chemicals. As far as I know, there's not exotic matter in it or anything like that. You'd say, well, that must be alien. You know, they're, they're known compounds. They say whatever it formed from, if it's not Earth rock, it must come from a solar system similar to the Earth because right. the chemical makeup is fairly similar to some of the rocks we have, okay? So I'm not claiming that it's made of, you know, some sort of compound that nobody knows, right? So what's anomalous about it instead is that the form it takes, because when, we, when you have an impact from a large body, sometimes it forms something called um, a, like a, well, a, like a glass, like a tectite yeah. glass. Yep. Yeah, tectite. find it in Egypt all the time with the meteorite. Yeah, they've got the Libyan desert glass, you know, it's, like a, it's a kind of a tectite glass. They also have this some up in North America. There's a, a mm -hmm. debris field there from an impact. Well, I know There's Graham one. Hancock and Randall Carlson, that was for the impact theory for the younger Dryas, is the micro diamonds and all that kind of stuff, too, found in all the geological layers. Yeah, you get, yeah, you get some impact. These particular tectite strewn fields, though, are a bit rare because, I mean, there's... There's four tectite strewn fields, which are vast fields linked to a singular event, right? The one in, the one in America, I think, goes back, um, maybe going back a million years, quite old. There's one in Africa, and there's also there's one in, oh, sorry, there's also the more famous one, which is in, in Europe, which is the one, the Moldavite, which people may know okay. Moldavite, is, a, is, a, is also an unusual material because it only exists 
from this one impact site, this green crystalline material moldavite. Again, is that's that the one the, where they built, they built the city buildings out of the material or something like that? I don't know. I figured out what I was watching, but there's a whole town in Europe that was built out of these like micro crystals or diamonds or something, and it's built okay. in the. Well, I know moldavite's supposed to be yeah. linked to the Grail stories, and also moldavite's supposed to be quite a weird one as well. I mean, again. I suspect Moldavite may be tied to some kind of alien event. But, I mean, I don't go too far inside the book. I touch on that very briefly. But the right. really weird strewn field is the Australian one. And the reason for that is because, A, it's the youngest, right? right. And it should have, therefore, a known crater, right? A, a really big crater. Because also, it has the largest amount of material, right, and with the highest distribution across from Southern Australia, where it's, most of it is, but some of it goes right across up to Southeast Asia, in different right. forms, right? And so what they expect to see is this enormous, quite young crater. Can't find a crater, right? There is no, there's no crater. Yeah. It yeah. There is none. So how does, an, how does this body, they think it's a one-kilometer-sized body, that's produced this material. So you've got this one kilometer sized body impacting only 780,000 years ago. It leaves no crater, right? right. That, that is one of the main anomalies, okay? The second thing is that some of the material takes a particular form called tectite buttons. Only occurs with this strewn field, no other in, this, in the 4.6 billion years of this planet. It only happens once with this australite, okay? And, that's, and this form told the scientists at NASA that it had to have formed in space. Because they said, well, look, what you have is evidence of a, an initial body, obviously about a kilometer, kilometer across, above in space, which has, for some reason, exploded and melted, right? And then in space has cooled very rapidly, right? So you've had it, it's become liquid, and they know, they know what this happened because they, initially they're spheres, right? And the only place where you get liquids that form instantly into spheres is the vacuum, right? In the vacuum of right. space. You see it when water flies around in a shuttle or whatever, it forms a sphere. Planets are spheres, moons are spheres. Anything that's liquid in space will form a sphere, right? So they know that initially it was in space. It formed a sphere, it cooled, right? And then these spheres rained down gotcha. past the atmosphere and had what they call secondary melting. And, and as they came down, they formed these strange shield shapes, the, the same like heat shields. So they naturally take these aerodynamic forms, right? So that writes off the idea that they can be formed by a normal planetary impact, because we don't know of any way really that a body can impact, throw the material all the way back up into space. That colossal amount of energy that would require, not with, without leaving an impact, right? Throw right. all the way back into space, and then it rains back down. So they're like, well, that seems really unlikely. So what we're left with is a strange body made of at least 80% silica, right? Because that's what the compound's made of, and we've analyzed it, which has, for some reason, exploded in our upper atmosphere and then melted, frozen, and then rained down. Oh, hang on a minute. Isn't that what these people said? You know what I mean? Isn't that what they're telling us? That there's right. this giant crystalline vessel that explodes in the upper atmosphere, it melts, and it rains down. And then nearby, you know, in, in Garyon, Gosford, there's a site where the scapecrafts come down, right? So you've got a tie-in. The material is found in Southern Australia. You know, it's what we call okay, yeah, Southern. I'd be careful because there's actually a state, South Australia. I don't mean the state of South Australia. Right. I mean Southern, so across quite a wide area. Yeah. Um, and then at Gosford, you have another site where supposedly the ships came down and you have this strange writing and you have an Aboriginal sacred site and all this stuff going on. 
And then it ties back in, obviously, to the other book, because it, obviously I make a complex argument for Australia being the place of the first ancestors. You know, So, right. again, yeah. they're saying that these people arrive, they then make humans, right? So, so if so you do combine, that... You combine your books, though. So what you were just... I just want to touch on it, because I think that's kind of a cool thing, is this book is talking about the same thing kind of as the last book, but in a different regard. Like, you took a more hard archaeological or science approach to the last one. However... This other thing that Dr. Roberts was talking about that you were, you know, talking about in your book uh, as well, that we come from still, even though there's offshoots and evolution and all that stuff still occurred, there was still this anomalous uh, subgroup that possibly came out of, you know, Australia. And this new book, Hybrid Humans, might be an explanation of how that came to be. It's kind of what I'm getting at with all of your guys' stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you think about it, they say that they think perhaps some of our early ancestors were actually upright, human-like beings rather than, than chimp-like. Well, right. these first, you know, some of the beings described on that ship certainly sound human-like. You know, they're humanoid. You know, they're upright, walking humanoids. They don't necessarily look identical to humans. But again, you know, if we're finding there's evidence within our our morphology and our genetics, that there is an ancestor that was an upright humanoid. Well, that's quite correct. And that's not, from my, again, as you're right, that does, again, tie in and support what we're saying is that there is an ancestor. And I think we have at least two lines of ancestry, of course. We have an ancestry to the hominids of this planet who yeah, right. maybe they were more chimp-like or whatever, but we have an ancestry on the other side, which is to humanoid-type beings that walked fully upright. And um, there's bloodlines, too, that we can't, like RH negative. Nobody seems to understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm wary of those things because, I mean, I think they can be explained without going off into the, um, like, additional alien meddling. I mean, it could be. But, again, what I stick with is, hey, look, rather than saying that RH negatives may be aliens, I'm saying everyone. Everyone well, no, is, like, not necessarily yeah. aliens, but just that it's anomalous in the sense that they don't know. Like, I've read real like read into it it's there's no real mm-hmm. explanation of why why or where it came to be you know like well there's there's no real explanation how our brains fucking quad yeah or the doubling in your brain means. size you know like but i guess but we the book hybrid human is just that is that that's the Not explanation human. is that uh mm-hmm. you know instead of the stoned ape theory or the right. cooking of the meat and the proteins from that doubling our brain size is that there was some sort of genetic engineering at some point or throughout the whole history, I think is what the book talks about is that. Yeah, look, it does answer all of the things that all of the other theories, like, you know, okay, stoned ape or the, the, the water-based ape or, you know, gradual errors, all of those theories have basically failed. Like if we're, right. if we're straight about it, like, you would not be able to sit down with a room of all the actors and say, look, are we agreed on any of these? But nah, nah <laughs> they don't really fit all what we see. Okay, what about if we accepted for a moment aliens modifying the genes? And They might not want to believe it, but you know what? It does answer all of the questions, all of the anomalies. Right? So no matter how uncomfortable that is, it fits better than all of the suggested models so far, which right. have all so far been found to be wanting, right? Because they all have an error so, you know, somewhere in them where they say, but that doesn't explain such and such, you know? Right. Whereas if you say, well, hang on a minute, you know, what about, you've got these, these survivors of this crash who, and it's claimed obviously in these transmissions. Now, whether you say they're past life memories, 
recordings in the field of the earth. Now, I delve a bit into this, as you know, in the book, but it's yeah. you know, people tapping into the field of the planet because we know that magnetic fields can store information. Or is it DNA, which stores information, speaking to us about our ancestry? Is there a code in there that unlocks and tells us this now? You know, I don't like to come down on an absolute thing, but what I'm saying is that a transmission has been received. And I, I don't really care in a way whether that's directly from the aliens, it's from a past life, from the field of the earth, from my DNA. I don't really care. What I care about is, is the transmission real? Right? Right. Does it provide verifiable, useful information? Now, in this case, I may say yes, because it led me to an anomalous material, right? Right. That exactly matches the claims, right? And then it has led me, and, and also consider, in the book they're saying that the memories, they thought it was towards 900,000 years ago, right? right. Okay, right. I've pinned it down to 780,000. And I accept that psychic mechanisms often are a bit vague on time because people have described timeless experiences and being out of time when you have these kind of experiences. So very difficult to pin down. So I give people a bit of leeway. And I looked between 900,000 to 700,000, well, so probably a bit wider than that, for this evidence. So I thought, well, it might not be exactly on 900,000. You know, let's, let's open our minds. Let's scour the, the evidence sure. a bit further. And so obviously I came down on this 780,000. And the amazing thing about that is that in the last couple of years, they've also found out that the first splitting of so the early Denisovans, Sapiens, and Neanderthals seems to occur approximately 750 to 800,000 years ago. Right. Some studies saying 780,000 years ago. And if you go back four years ago, even, they were saying it was 400,000 years ago, right? right. So in 2002, <laughs> there's no way you could say it. 900,000 years ago, people have just said, you're in la-la land. You know, that's miles away. You're half a million years too early. And now they're back to 780,000, right? So there's no way that those people could have just pulled that, you know, that kind of depth out of their asses for a start. Uh, And the fact that this material matches that date, you know, the material is 780,000 years old. You know, the genetic signatures for the modification of the species go back to 780,000 years ago. The fusing of chromosome 2, 780,000 years ago, right? So when you start getting these kinds of these kind of anomalous events clustering on a singular dating, right? That's when you really have to start thinking. And you're starting out. The, the only breadcrumbs you have are coming from an anomalous transmission, right? Otherwise, you don't know where to be looking for this for this pattern. And then the next thing they're saying is there's also a bombardment of the planet. And again, we're going back. You know, I think this book is published 2002 from information things that happened in the early in the mid 1990s. So the author only has available the scientific studies of the 1990s if she was going to make this all up. Right. So by 2002, there's no room for her to make it up because she's published it, right? And and in the material, it claims that there is a revenge mission, that a group of beings come to the Earth, uh, they do not like the destruction of the peaceful colony ship, and they warn the other group, you've got to leave, otherwise we're going to bombard the planet. And they say what they use is essentially tractor beams that pull large comets and meteorites behind their craft, and they bombard planets with them. They say, look, we're quite capable of splitting a planet open with these these, these sizes of objects that we can move. That's right? also current technology. I mean, they, they think, too, obviously. Moving meteorites. If we're going to save ourselves from an asteroid or a comet, that is one of the things mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. they're going to try to move and do. these things. And they're moving these large bodies around. And so they say, look, you know, get off the planet or else. Most of these beings apparently leave. They go through a Stargate, whatever it is, and they go off to Orion. I mean, Orion features in a lot of ancient mythology and all the rest of it, as does the Pleiades. 
They're the two most commonly featured star systems in all the ancient mythology of this planet, Orion and the Pleiades. You go anywhere on Earth, talk to the native people. What star systems are important in your mythologies? I'm betting you they'll probably come up with at least one or both, Orion and the Pleiades, right? So there's this other group who leave, go back to Orion, but some of them don't go. So there's a bombardment of the planet. And so they say they throw down these massive bodies, bombard the planet, destroy these underground bases, basically put an end, more or less, to these other forces that are there. Now, I think how could you make that up? You know, right. there'd have to be evidence. You know, either it happened or it didn't happen, right? If it happened, there should be a trace of something like that. And right. I thought, I've never heard of that. I've heard of, like, every now and again, a large object hits the Earth. Now, it's quite rare. And I've never heard of one where there's lots of them at once, different directions. So right. I'm thinking, that's anomalous. I'll look for that. And, like, incredibly, I think it's only in 2006, a, G a German geological team uncovered evidence for a multi-directional planetary bombardment of the planet by different meteorites that hit, like, the Americas, Africa, Australia, and they said caused, like, global firestorms, earthquakes, tsunamis, like a total devastation. They dated right. it 780,000 years ago. Wow. Right? <laughs> so it's like, boom. And I'm like, still, you know, you know you're shaking, you're thinking... It can't be, it can't be, not another, another freaking hit, you know, hit. Well, these hit. are the synchronicities, you know, that's, yeah, that's what we're talking like, about. You know, and it just, and like, if, if, if I'd looked for that a couple of years ago, you know what I mean, I wouldn't have found it. So again, right. there's no really author could know that by reasonable means. So why guess something like, trying to pull all these things out, if it was all guesswork, you know, it's a bit much, isn't it, that all their guesses come true, you know, they made up this story, but all the things they've made up are accurate. You know, it's like, come on. There's a point where you've got to say, well, hang on a minute, they're getting this information from somewhere. And if it's not out there in scientific papers, it's not available to the public, like where the hell are they getting their shit from? You know? And the other one that I thought kind of wigged me out as well is when you look at 780,000 years ago, it's the last time the planet had a, a full magnetic pole shift, right? Yeah. That's pretty weird. That, that, you know, you're looking we're at this one period, you've already found yeah. You found evidence for a sh of a wrecked ship, evidence for modifying the genetic, you know, of the humans. You found the evidence of the multi-planetary bombardment, and it just happens to be the same period as the last full magnetic. You know, what I mean? am I going to say that? I think this is disconnected. You know, it's just like bang, 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 anomaly, 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 right. anomaly. You know, so there's obviously something wildly bizarre happening on this planet seven hundred eighty thousand years ago. I think. We want, we all want to believe. I want to believe. I, as much as I want to believe, I still haven't really. I mean, we go camping up north Michigan every year and we see crazy shit, but it's normally just satellites and stuff like that. Um, like I said, I've experienced more through, well, I mean, meditation. I've seen some pretty weird shit. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. if I'm laying in bed thinking too, all of a sudden, right before I, you know, go to sleep. I'll have some weird stuff happen. That thing you were talking about with the light, I see that in meditation sometimes. It's almost like a spotlight. Yeah. You know, and if you focus on it too much, you start to see shit you don't want to see, and then you back away from it. Kind of what you were talking about with your DMT experience. Um, yeah. In terms of, you know, this thing is something profound or something there, but there's mm -hmm. a part of you that's like scared to yeah. entertain it or intermingle with it. You know. Yeah. Um, so the absolute unknown, isn't it? You know that, right? Could so, be, you know. So what you're yeah. saying makes sense. I mean, we could be living in in a world right now where it is interdimensional, and there are stargates in there. We the, every the universe could be teeming with life, and we just can't see it. We're we're are we're stuck in 3D. You know, 
um, mm-hmm. length with height, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. If you want to be generous, you can say time. Um, you know, the scientific model is what string theory, string theory needs at least 11 or 10 dimensions to be valid, you know, and basonic string theory needs 26 dimensions, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah. in terms of that kind of stuff, it's like, well, we're so far off from that. Why not look at the stuff we do know that we do have kind of like what you're talking about, whether it be psychic medium stuff, whether it be psychedelics, whether it be um, these these actual tools that have been called tools from ancient people um, to 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 talk about this stuff. And, you know, if you look at all the you know, I'm sure, you know, what's that the ancient handbag thing that's drawn on Gobekli Tepe and the ancient Mayan stuff and all that stuff. What is that? You know, is that are those psychedelics? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are those psychedelics in there? Is that some sort of ancient, um, you know, alien technology? Is that, does that tie into what we're talking about? You know, what, what, there's so many anomalous things that Mm -hmm. it's books like, you know, into Africa and your, your, your newer, newer book, hybrid humans that are very thought provoking and it's not woo woo at all. Like that's what I liked about both of the books. It's not, you have evidence to back everything up, you know, and like you just said, those synchronicities that you just laid out, align perfectly with the timeline that you laid out within the book, you know? Um, and I couldn't and it, have found that without that initial information. That's the important thing as well. It's not like, um, you know, I just decided one day I would just scour the records of the world looking for an alien ship and looking for a genetic anomaly or looking for a bomb. You know what I mean? People have to realize that I could not and would not have ever been involved with this had I not already read someone's very strange, you know, interdimensional account, if you like, right. this material. And so I'm happy for someone to say, well, okay, I don't say believe you, but then, okay, well, challenge the data. Go out there and debunk it for me. Show me how this came about without that being true. You know, show me how that author happened to come up with these profoundly globally altering events without having access to any of the studies, even the finds that hadn't been made yet. How did she guess that? You know, debunk, debunk the book, you know, debunk the claims, debunk my findings, or tell me, how, why is it they all align to 780,000 years? You know, I'm happy for someone to say, well, I don't believe it right now, but I'm going to go away and think about this and challenge this. Please do. I mean, you know, I would like someone to sort of, sort of say to me, look, well, you know, I think it could be like this or something, because at the moment I haven't really seen anyone sort of turn around and say, do more than say, well, I don't know, you know, either I don't believe it or I'm not yet convinced. Okay, but what I'd like to see is challenge it because the idea of this is, is I'm not giving you a channeling. You know, I'm not saying I've channeled this, believe right. it or not, you know, because that's what I didn't want to give you because I know that those people already believe, right? I don't need to write a book of channeling to the new age to tell them that there's aliens. Those books are written. There's right. hundreds of them, Right. Those people already believe they don't need me. They don't need me to tell them about Pleiadians or anything. The people I'm trying to write to are the people who are still skeptical and who would like some physical evidence or would like some genetic evidence. And that's why I'm offering. I'm not saying that they have to just say, well, I believe absolutely. I'd like them to go away and think, well, I am a skeptic, but, you know, how do I debunk this? You know, how do I sort of find out how did this guy come to this stuff? You know, and why is it all clustering on 780,000 years ago? Like, what the hell is this about? Right. You know, and, you know, showing me that there's another coherent solution. Are you familiar with the Urantia book or the Urantia papers? I, I hear people say to me a lot about it. I don't know too much about it. Okay. I, I'm certainly aware I highly it. recommend reading. It's one of the better compositions, I think, in the last, I don't even know, 100, couple hundred years. 
Um, and it was supposedly channeled. Nobody really knows how it really came to be, but uh, this guy was talking in his sleep and his wife came to this guy, um, Dr. William Sadler, and he was like a debunker of paranormal and like exorcism type stuff. And that was what he was into was debunking all that kind of stuff. He'd go around to like fairs and different stuff and just kind of lay it straight to people. But one night he in Chicago, um, oddly enough, which is where I live, um, the woman came to him. This is the early turn of the century, not early 1910 or 1920, I believe. Uh, my husband's talking in his sleep, you know, and, um, can you come over here? And so oddly enough, the guy, the stuff that the guy was saying was making a lot of sense and it had to do with yeah. stuff that hadn't been proven yet with evolution and mm-hmm. stuff And that, you know, the book goes, it's, it's uh, the reason why I like it is because it combines, um, spirituality, um, history, evolution, science, you know, it's all, it's all of that stuff. It's, it's all of it together. Mm-hmm. But the one point that I thought was interesting kind of ties into it is that, modern humans in that book are known to be about or a little less than a million years old. So it kind of even ties into what you're saying with, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities in that right now there's a whole universe of teeming, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's more of a Mm -hmm. spiritual book, but if you read it the right way, you understand that they're talking about some sort of metaphysical aliens or entities or something along those lines and that there is this whole galactic alliance of stuff going on and at one point we were quarantined um because of our malicious and behaviors and apparently there's other you know universes and planets and stuff that don't even know what hate and and war is and that they're all about peace and love and that would make that's what makes us unique is that we experience the full range of all of this stuff so i definitely recommend reading it you know there is yeah. normal elements to it too it talks about jesus's life from when he was you know yeah i'm, I'm a bit wary i know i've heard of it i know it's been watched the channel I, I have had people say to me that there's links between it and my work um so i probably should look at some time but it's yeah i mean i guess i was keen to sort of not to put to like i said to association with channeled works and stuff into it because yeah, I mean, I do accept that channeling can be real. And obviously, I'm married to a psychic medium. So, I mean, obviously, I'm aware I get information given to me by my wife, which I can, you know, verifiably say was right. true. I've seen her give readings for people and you know, it's all the rest of it. So, yes, I believe channeling can give information. But I'm well, also aware like- that there's people who need something else, you know. So that was what the intention was to right. deal with the people that can't really just say, okay, I can accept channeling or, you know, um, they need, you know, need that something tangible, you know, where I can say, okay, look, here's a physical thing that ties in, you know, it, again, right. like past lives or any psychic reasons, like, it's only really real when you can verify something, you know, like if I say to you, like your cousin's name is Steve, you know, right. and Steve works in like an, an iron mill or something, you know, right. and, you know, and also drives a red car and the number plate is X, Y, Z, like, it's going to be hard for you to turn around and say, in it? Like, well, he, you know, he's just making I would just stuff. say read this, though, because it's not, I get what you're saying. This is completely different. I mean, I like to think I'm kind of an intelligent person. Mm-hmm. This book is hard to read for, it's not like even college reading level. Like, even Maurice can speak to this. You have to reread certain parts because the syntax is so. I'm, I'm a sixth grade reading level. <laughs> is so crisp and, 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 and unusual that I don't know any human being that ever wrote in this kind of format before. Um, 
And just the stuff, like I said, it, it predicts things from 1920 that we know now in science that they didn't know back then and stuff like yeah. that. So I get his I'm, point though. He doesn't want to fucking. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, I, I'm, all I'm saying is just read it. That's all I'm saying yeah. because I, I do think that there are certain things in there that even if you don't believe any of it, it's still a great read. I mean, that's just yeah. what it comes down to. And I'm all about reading interesting stuff. Um, but I get what you're saying with the whole channeling thing. Um, because I'm, I watch TV and I'll see like that Long Island medium or whatever. I'm like, you know, this lady's full of fucking shit right now. You know, like, yeah, I mean, it's got to be something verifiable in it for yourself, you know, not just, right. so well, I mean, I, that's, that's what I liked about Anybody this. can look up information too. You like, Oh, I'll go on Facebook and look at this person's whole life from the past or whatever like that. So, but if you're saying something like I know in the book, you know, there's a few points where you can tell. Uh, your wife definitely has something different than your run of the mill, uh, you know? So like, I think having a good bullshit detector is a good thing, mm -hmm. you know, cause not everybody is going to claim is what they claim to be, you know? And that goes for all sure. stuff, even the UFO stuff. Friend, you know, we don't, but you can see, look, we don't write or put things in the style of say, you know, Gaia's cosmic disclosure. We're not asking you just to sit right. there and take a narrative, you know, from my head to your head with me telling you that Pleiadians did this, the Pleiadians do that. You know, I'm saying, well, look, you know, this is this series of events which provided this information, which I validated in this way um, and explaining in detail the science of it, you know, what the NASA scientists did, what the geologists did to establish this material, you know, uh, the genes that were changed, how they were changed, you know, why they're anomalous, you know, so I do this in a particular way, you know, because as you said, like from my first book, you know, I write in a fairly academic way, like I don't write in the way that most people in our fields write, like so most people, there's a lot of sort of speculation, there's a lot of their personal, you know, I think is like this, or they have a theory, and they put, that's not to say I'm not biased, and it's not to say I don't have a theory. I, I've put it there with the science, right. and like, I'm being totally honest, if, if I'd done this investigation of the book, and I hadn't found the material, the genetic signature didn't match the dates, there was no meteorite, blah, blah, look, I would not have published the book, just to go like, right. oh, fuck it, I've written all this, I right. want to make a few bucks, I'm not going to waste all my time. I'm just going to publish it anyway and just say this shit happened. Right. You know, I would not, there would be no book, right? If I could not have found scientifically solid, verifiable support for these things, I would have just been the book because I don't need to embarrass myself. I can write about well, other here's things. The thing, like your first book is more, it's not mainstream because it goes against the mainstream, but it's mainstream no. in the sense that you are taking. A it should be logical. Well, I know, I know. It, it actually it should. should I, like I mean, I said, it's I, a normal I, book based on the same science papers that the other scientists' books are based on. Right. Like the only difference is my interpretation of the same accepted finds and that they have an interpretation which I consider to be deeply flawed. But so right. obviously, yes, I don't get, and because I haven't got a PhD, I can't get an academic right. publisher. Uh, I can't get into the, the science, you know, bookshelves, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, nobody will do that, and I can't get them to debate me. I'm not in a university. I don't have that support. But obviously, I have a problem. The book should be, yeah, a normal pop science book, you know, in, your, in the pop science shelf of every bookstore, but, like, it won't be because of that. But I write in that style. And, like, the next book I do on Inter-America and one I'm going to probably do on, you know, this 
fall of the Sunderland culture and Gebekli Tepe and the, and the, globe, the lost global civilization, basically, which uses these symbols, which I consider to be Sundanese Aboriginal symbols, which you find in the Americas, you find in, a, in, um, in Asia, you find, you know, these same symbols. Look, I, I will be doing a book on that and probably an Into America. And those will probably be more in the style of Into America. I might add a bit more... Um, of myself into them a bit more, you know, what's the called the word, you know, more narrative and a bit yeah. more, um, a bit more of that. A bit more, I guess, a bit more the Graham Hancock style, right? Make it a bit less academic, perhaps a bit more inviting than the first book. Um, but I, it well, probably won't. Through, like, your work should be like, and even Graham Hancock, you know, people poo poo Graham Hancock. If you go on Reddit on the archaeology pages. Those people are fucking assholes. They are so close-minded. It's like, you yeah. don't know shit, you know? Like, what are you talking? You're showing me fucking bones that you can't even explain and stuff like that. So it's like, mm-hmm. these pages and these people and this, it's just all, it's whatever's popular dominates. So if there's a popular opinion and a mm-hmm. few people can prove it and then everybody jumps on the bandwagon, then it becomes this whole thing, you know? it's um, yeah. it, it, You're right, though. Your work, Graham Hancock's work, all these people should be at the forefront, you know, and I do think Grant Hancock is getting a lot of love that he deserves recently in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, Joe Rogan podcast, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It took him time. You know, he said he nearly went bankrupt in the early days. You know, he had no sort of support. There was like, you know, it was like almost career suicide from his original journalist career, which was doing quite well. You know, so, I mean, I said, you know, yes, he's done very well. But it, it was a hard grind that took him a long time. So, but I mean, if you believe it and you're passionate about it, you know, you're obviously, I think what comes through for you with your work and, and through Danny, you know, and all that stuff is it comes out that you are passionate about it. And not only that you do not, not that you just believe it, but that you've lived it, you've experienced it, you've, mm-hmm. you know, put your heart and soul into this thing, you know, and that's what yeah. comes through. And that's what I want as a reader too. When I read a book, I don't want somebody blowing smoke up my ass or just laying out plain science or archeology. span How is that even relatable to us as yeah. part of the human experience, you know? So and if people just want a good story and want to believe, then, you know, there is cosmic disclosure on Gaia, sign up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just David Wilcock. you know, I don't need to add to that. And what's the point, to be honest, like that's there already. And there's plenty of people writing those books. Like, so what do you think no, about some of these other people? In with that, you know, and that's, what, that's what, the what's your take on the whole recent Tom DeLong stuff with, uh, to the Stars Academy, you know, do you think that there's something there? I mean, obviously he's been in contact that Luis Elizondo is running that, mm-hmm. uh, the ATIP program and they have those videos like go fast and all those little clips of the, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's, you want to call it UFO or an anomalous vehicle or whatever, um, yeah. cruising through the skies. But what's your take on all that? It's weird because he came out hard hitting strong, Joe Rogan, and even this season on Ancient Aliens, it was the first thing as part of the first episode. Um, mm-hmm. So he's really getting himself out there. Do you think there's something there? Do you think it's a money grab? What do you think's going on there? Yeah, it's kind of strange because, I mean, okay, you know, people say well, there's a lot of money that's gone into it, and he seems to be there, you know, there's a lot of debt and, and all this. Without, without it being clear, you know, what that money goes on, I mean, it's so it's confusing. One thing that confuses me, look, if, if someone gave me $10 million, today right yeah i can tell nice, you that right? five, in five years i will hand you atlantis on a platter i will prove to you beyond any reasonable doubt et modified us but i because I, I know where to go and do this i know to get the information i know what labs i would need 
I don't have $10 million. Like right. All the stuff I provide, like my Inter Africa and the hybrid humans, those are done for me in my bedroom. A broke ass, you know, mm. sitting in my bedroom on my own, no support network, no unis, no help, no funding, nothing. Right. And I managed to pull out of my own ass a book that destroys the conventional, you know, out of Africa theory on my own, taking on the whole scientific community with no money, with no, like, again, yeah, no funding, no studies. Right. I have to just go on what they've done. And then on top of that, they've gone off and done this hybrid humans where I, I first person actually found what seems to be the evidence of an alien spacecraft and offering it to the public. I'm not saying like, mm, I got in a secret tin and one day it'll be Anna. Like, like, I've got these pictures in the book. I say, look, go, this is the material. You can right. buy it, man. Go and buy it. You know, I, very straightforward is where we're yeah, very straightforward. And I tell you which genes are modified. It's this one and this one. If I had the money, the 10 million, I'd be going to labs and saying, well, look, I think this gene is anomalous. You know, can you study this? You know, I think there's a change here in the human anatomy that needs to be looked at closer. Like, I would have some really hard sore shit for people. My books would be really tight. You know what I mean? Uh, right. There'd be no messing about. If, if people gave me $10 million, but I am a bit sort of wigged out that when people get some like $43 million in a hole <laughs> and then they've shown me like free gun cam videos. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, okay, they might have some really good stuff coming, but it ain't enough money to build an alien spaceship. Well, so it seems like it's identity doing, you know, because yeah, it's confusing, you know, because a lot of money for doing what has been done, but it's not enough money to build an alien spaceship. So I don't quite get what the money's going into or what the big reveal can be. I mean, I think they're doing interesting stuff. They've got like a, it's a yeah, an interesting team of people. I mean, you've got obviously people from like Lockheed Skunk Works and you know, former black, you know, black ops kind of deep state people. So, yeah, so it's unique in the history of the ET investigation to have a team like that and with the sort of money that's flying around, you know, available to them. So it would be certainly be very disappointing if they didn't continue to at least produce more videos, you know, from the archives and that there wasn't some big payoff at the end where you say, aha, that's where right. the tens of millions went. Because if it just folds and what well, we've yeah, had is a few videos, you know, that, that'd be said they're making movies and shit, so who knows if mm -hmm. it's a... Maybe they're making the film in the background or something. So I guess the millions could be going on a movie. That would, that would fit more. Because I, I can't see how it's enough money to build a ship in it or something. You know, people say, oh, maybe it's an anti-gravity spaceship. Look, right. Even a normal military plane costs like a billion dollars. And it's something right. I'm not expecting them to suddenly like Tom DeLong fly, flying on YouTube. It is anti-grav crap. Look, look everywhere. And I've done it. <laughs> like, I don't see that happening. Right. But they must well, be something they are doing. Yeah, his identity with this, though, is tied to the U.S. government in that sense. Like, yeah. all of his research and stuff is under the guise that there's something there, we've known there's something there, and that, you know, even as I've read some of his uh, uh, fiction, too, I think it was mm -hmm. Chasing Shadows or something like that. It was actually kind of a cool book, um, but uh, I've read God's Man War, too, which is his nonfiction, which is just a recounting yeah. of cargo cult type stuff and yeah. Sumerian stuff and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, but yeah, I don't buy the Sumerian stuff myself. I mean, yeah, no, that's, that's missing. That's Zachariah Sitchin. Yeah, I've read, I've read 12th planet. It's kind of disingenuous, you know, Tom, Tom's problem as well is I did hear an interview he did, I think it was with vice maybe, or with one of the big, you know, magazines. And in it, he says, you know, he clearly says, they said, I'm allowed to tell, you know, reveal these truths. As long as I mix it with fiction, so I'm like, fuck Tom, that's called disinfo. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like that's that's what it's it been is. Happening, mate. You know, you, you yeah. realize, you know, so 
I struggle a bit that he doesn't grasp that that's what we've always had. You know, we don't need like another book that's got some half truths mixed in with some confusing made up stuff. And you're trying to figure out which bit's true and which bit's bullshit. Like, yeah, we've, we've had that, Tom. We've kind of had that like the whole time. Like, can you just write the bits that are factual and that just bin the rest? You know, because I find that frustrating to start by saying, I'm only allowed to tell you it if it's mixed into loads of bullshit. Like, right. what's that about? Well, we're the ones listening to a washed-up uh, musician. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, yeah, I think his band was pissed too when he didn't come back and play with them too. Well, yeah, the guy had the guy had it made playing music. Now, now he's off chasing uh, shadows. God knows what, but um, what do you think about Doctor Stephen Greer? Yeah, I mean, again, I, kind of thing. Except he seems to be more open. Like he's not playing games. He's using. Doc, declassified documents and trying to find these little, you know, I don't yeah. know if you saw that Atta, Atacama from the Atacama Desert, um, which they yeah, did. It's a, it's a isn't it? I mean, yeah. he's using the documents. He's getting the people to come out and give their, you know, their statements as facts. He's not saying, you know, come out and mix it in with some stuff. You know, he's like, if you're going to speak, speak about what you know, you know. Right. Um, I do you hear all sorts of criticisms on a personal level and like, Every human being is fallible. Like, I don't know Tom DeLong. Yeah. I don't no, know Stephen Greer. Like, I don't know if they're, like, lovely people to have a chat with or if they're assholes. You know, I don't know. But in terms of what they bring and the people they get to do stuff, you know, I've got to say, okay, look, you know, Stephen brought out some really, you know, great people with stories that really help to us understand what's going on and that Tom DeLong has gathered together some really intriguing people who should right. know stuff. And so I would certainly expect that they should bring things out. So I think Stephen Greer's one is different. Obviously, he doesn't have the same, well, I suppose that circle of black projects type people. So I, I like guess... how he, he mixes it with meditation, though, too, because I do think, mm-hmm. again, that meditation, plant medicine, whatever you're doing to get outside of this consciousness yeah. is part of the key or part of the, what we've all been searching for, trying to figure yeah. out. Well, again, yeah, like we said earlier, and I don't think that we will ever solve these conundrums no, by no. purely focusing on rivets, bolts, nuts, pieces of metal, and all that. Like, I'm, like for people that are stuck in that paradigm, that's not the answer because what people are, the experiences are telling people, and the people who see these things are saying, look, they defy our understanding of physics, right? They defy our understanding of reality. You know, right. ships appear out of nowhere um, or appear as glowing spheres, which then turn into black, you know, metal craft or turn directly into humanoids walking along on the ground and then turn back into glowing orbs and fly away. I mean, look, that is not just normal physical entities walking about or flying in their normal metal ship. There's, there's something far more bizarre that questions our understanding of physics and our understanding of the nature of reality there. So if we don't look at those altered states of consciousness and you know the, the nature of reality, then I don't see how you can understand a phenomena that clearly does call into question all of that, right? You know, and I've seen I've seen like things, I've seen one, you know, an object where myself and four other people, we stopped the car because we could see something. It would fly along, it would disappear, and it would appear in another part of the sky, and it would be going in another direction. You know, it might be going up, then it would be over there going down, then it was over there going left. So it wasn't meteor, you know what I mean? It wasn't raining that. It was something that was just teleporting around the sky. Now, I don't know if that's the U.S. technology, but whatever it is, teleporting is some pretty hardcore tech that yeah. questions, you know, our reality. So, I mean, I've seen firsthand there's things up there that 
are breaking the rules, right? And other people, many other people have seen things breaking the rules. So, I mean, Stephen Greer is right in that, yeah, we do need to look at that, as has, um, I know there's another guy who focuses a lot on that, I've forgotten his name now, he focuses quite a lot on that we have to talk to the experiencers and that yeah. we have to look at this phenomena as to actually, you know, what is it questioning about the nature of reality? And I think it's those researchers, I think it's Grant Cameron, actually, yeah, yeah. talks a lot about that. Um, those are the people that I'm interest, more interested in. I think that Tom DeLong's team, I do wonder if they're not too focused on the physical and this idea right. of building a ship and, you know, reverse engineering the technologies and stuff. I, I, I think that that's... Well, it seems like that's new. where they would get their money out of it, though. Like, if he's... if. He, it seems like there's a there's two routes, and I don't think you can have both. There's mm. either a personal quest or spiritual truth element of it, mm. or there's a monetization element of it. You know, you see it like you said with all these shows and Gaia Channel, and you got to pay for Gaia Channel and all this stuff. There's a monetization of it, and it's not just getting information out there. It's we're going to make money off this because this is a thing that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Then there's this other thing happening, like stuff that you're doing. And there's, there's other people that are doing good work and getting, you know, good research done on this kind of stuff um, that are true that, that, you know, yeah, if my book blows up, awesome, but I'm not gonna, you know, turn it into this thing that, you know, has become woo woo or hoaxy and it's based on the material too. So your material is good. Your evidence is good on top of having a true, hard about it too if that makes sense and one of the reasons why i've gone self-published as well is because you know i want the information out there as quick as possible I, i'm i'm excited for other people in a way as well i want everyone part of this journey this story you know what i mean that with the stuff i do so i publish articles or i self-publish a book because otherwise you know what you can do of course is you can struggle to get a good agent you know go into that process of finding a big publisher and look, what you're really looking at is years right so you're looking at years of wait to get the right. big payoff, right? And so you'll get maybe the big distribution, you'll get the big payoff and all that if you go that route. But what I want is that information out there as quick as possible. Now, right. so the downside of that is I don't reach the audience, the big audience that someone with Harper Collins will reach. But I also don't get my stuff edited to bits, you know, where they just put, well, we can't say that, or, <laughs> you know, we don't want that in there. Right. Uh, no, it's got to be like this to sell, you know, because then it all comes about selling your book. You know, how do we sell this? You know, if we just chop this off, or can't you just spin it a bit more like, um, you know, like this? Because that sells right now. Right. You know, it, so I've tended to, so yeah, I don't, I'm not going to be making like a million dollars my books, and I, but I want them out like tomorrow. You know what I mean? If I finish my book today, I want to put it out tomorrow so people can look at it. Because that's what, I'm, to money me, we're all money, part of that investigation. Money you know, is just money. You know, like what you're getting out of it, I would think was so much more, in terms of just knowing this cool thing with all these synchronicities that you devoted your life to is getting read by people. You know, I, I'm amazed sometimes when we don't have a ton of followers yet on, on our, you know, podcast because we're somewhat newer within, you know, last mm-hmm. eight months or so. But when I see a video, that's gets seven. You know, we did one with RN Voot, who's an author, uh, Spirit of the Sky and De-Evolution Cycle. Um, you know, that's always got 700 things, you know. It's just like, and we're not really putting too much effort into it, but we just want to get stuff out there. And if yeah. something happens, cool. If not, whatever, we move on to the next thing and just keep linking these dots together. But I will say this, you know, um, you and your wife were super cool. I reached out to you. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, about I learned this. a lot, man. I, I, I love that about this community, how, you know, there are assholes out there, but for the most part, everybody I've met since we've done our podcast has been super cool, super helpful. Um, mm-hmm. they just want to get the information out there and, um, 
I think that's what it's all about. So if we want to end it on that note, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. Your books are amazing. Everybody uh, check check them out on Amazon, Into Africa and Hybrid Humans. Uh, Do you have a website too dedicated to them? Yeah, there's a couple. So you'll see the hybridhumans.net for the book. Uh, My personal website, brucefenton.info. And I also have ancientnews.net. Uh, and there's a few articles on another one, earthforall.net. So any of those, which is earth4all.net. So any of those websites, they'll find, you know, stuff that we've, we've done or put together. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And uh, it's been super enlightening. And we're going to have you on again. And hopefully next time you'll have a new book about uh, Into the Americas. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've, got, we'll... I've got to move that along because Graham Hancock's got one coming out yeah. on a similar topic. So I was thinking, shit, I need to... Well, well your stuff's a different take, you know. Uh-oh. As much as much as uh, I'm sure there'll be a couple common themes, I, I I do know from reading his books and reading your books, as cool as they are, they do offer a little bit different point of view, which I do like too. So yeah. we're all looking for answers. It's nice to have different takes on stuff. So sure, but I I it would be nice to if I can be out there a little bit first, you know, and then <laughs> say, aha, I beat you to yeah. it. Yeah, no, his books are a lot longer than mine. So I think people can expect probably a 500, 600-page book from him. For me, it's the more like... On, maybe. So. He's a wordsmith. Yeah. He comes from the land of journalism. So that's, yeah. that's you know, they're all yeah. about writing. So, but uh, thanks for coming on. And like I said, we'll get you back on here. And thanks, uh, Much thank you. Awesome. Peace. Okay. And thanks, everyone, for who's listened, obviously, as well. Should appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Cool.